Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 53 Wonder Woman Worth Cherishing in Every Way I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode reacts to Wonder Woman and answering some in-story questions about the film. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. So much to say and not enough time. I wish we had more time. Let's just get this out of the way. I love the film. It's wonderful. You should be very proud. (laughs) As if there was any doubt. (laughs) Well, actually, there was on my part a lot of doubt. And as much as I love Wonder Woman, I had a mixture of complex and conflicting reactions the first two viewings. Seriously, the first version of this episode is me raising a lot of challenges. The second is me systematically challenging myself. But by the third viewing and beyond, I appreciate this film so much more than I did before. So we'll see how this goes. Third time's the charm, right? From the get-go, I continued to think that Diana should be wiser, more deliberate, know better, or do things differently. But it didn't take long to see that my thoughts came from how different we were as people rather than legitimate commentary. I needed to remind myself again and again that reasonable minds may differ. Diana's single-mindedness made her much more easily understood by audiences than characters who hold conflicting principles and ideals in tension. And while there were some worries that they were bordering on making Diana dumb, I've come to see it as the virtue of childlike faith and innocence. Similar to the way Jorel dreams of a child, free to choose, free to dream, free to aspire. I feel like Wonder Woman paints a beautiful picture of a childhood that is free from depravity, disappointment, doubt, discrimination, need, or insecurity. Even when Antiope tries to accuse Diana of doubting herself, Diana is so sure of herself, even against the greatest Amazon warrior who had ever lived. There's something wonderful about a child who can be raised that way, fearless, secure, courageous, and certain, to be told every day and by everyone that she's special, unique, worthy, and royalty. Every child should be so fortunate. Every spirit should be so beautiful. Every soul so untouched. If we tell them all their lives that they're beautiful, capable, and precious, might they carry themselves with a sense of self-assured worth that's different than all those who carry all the anxieties and insecurities of rejection, disappointment, or shame. This film is beautiful in the way that it can summon thoughts, themes, and ideas like that, which latch onto people's hearts and move them. Even if I was too distracted by diegetic details to really feel that way at first. With repeated viewings, released expectations, and intentional appreciation, my notes filled up fast with a ton of topics like tie-ins, themes, world-building, magic history, and on and on. It's worth cherishing in every way. 
but I kept starting and stopping a dozen different outlines. I'd be amazed at the delivery of information or break down how the romance would unfold or start detailing all the airplane tech and history, a catalog of connections with obsessive quality not fit for print. And whenever I get like this, in order to actually get an episode out, I go back to my default mode of thinking and approach, questions and answers, even if, admittedly, this isn't a movie that attempts to survive muster in that regard. It's just a way to break the ice, clear the clutter, and get some initial unpolished ideas out, so that the pressure of saying everything is broken simply by saying anything, and I can revisit and refine later. <laughs> That's the lie I say to myself so that I can finally sit down and record, to avoid letting perfect be the enemy of good, even if I feel rusty every time I'm at the mic. I can already tell I'm gonna ramble, and I apologize in advance. So, this episode is not a Wonder Woman review, it's a reaction after seeing it six times, reading through the art book, reading through the novelization, and skimming just a few interviews. The art book is the best yet because it's also a making of book and gives more insights into the filmmaking process and intentions than before. It also took that great gimmick from the Suicide Squad art book, including those little physical extras, and elegantly worked it into this one in a classy and fitting way. Titan Books just keeps upping their game. I can't wait for the Justice League book. The novelization cleaved very closely to the film, probably closer than any prior novelization, but it still contains some insights which we'll touch on later. And like before, I'm mostly getting my lines from the novelization and memory, so please forgive any mistakes. So for this episode, what I'm going to do is put Wonder Woman into context with the other films just for myself, lightly touch on the difference in approach and reception, and then we're going to set about appreciating Wonder Woman by exploring some of the common in-story or diegetic questions about the film, like how it squares with Dawn of Justice or what the final battle meant, can Wonder Woman fly, and so on. For now, I don't feel like I need to cover the emotional effect or impact. Plenty of people who love this film already have. This is maybe more a mechanical analysis, breaking down the implications of certain things, as I've done before. So stay tuned if you're into that. If you're looking for a gushing feel-good love fest, that's not this episode. Probably a future one. <laughs> So let's begin with a question. Why the association of myth with falsehood? We were careful to sidestep it last episode and didn't talk about it. We extolled the virtues of myth, but if it's so good, why is a major meaning a widely held false belief or idea? And this comes from the dichotomy and the transition in ancient Greek thought from mythos to logos. Broadly speaking, you could say that it's the transition from Homer to the likes of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The latter were critical of using invisible superhuman persons to explain natural phenomenon, and instead focused upon observation, logical deduction, and impersonal natural causes. Evan Pushak explains the transition in another context. Polytheism is a chaotic condition. It's not so hard to imagine our forefathers of antiquity devoid of explanations for earthquakes or debilitating diseases, stars. It's it's not so hard to imagine them assigning these mysterious forces a personage, a deity of what else? Distinctly human shape and character whose job it was to oversee this or that sphere of existence. This way of thinking is called mythos, in which 
the world and its forces are described by stories of holy origin. When the mythical man wants to explain the universe, he does it based on gods and powers, and if he is a more elegant thinker in fiction and allegory. Mythos and polytheism is necessarily disordered, anarchic. There need be no unifying principle to connect things because the universe as such is at the caprices of these gods and goddesses who agree about as much as we humans do. Now, there is one institution that can't exist in a world dominated exclusively by mythos, and that is the institution of science. Why? Well, because we know that the foundational principle of science is the principle of no contradiction. In other words, a scientific theory is only valid until a contradiction is found, in which case said theory must be revised or scrapped. Nothing in polytheism resembles this kind of logic. Contradiction in mythos is totally acceptable. So where does science come from? Well, this is perhaps the greatest irony of all. Science proceeds historically from monotheism, a belief system held originally by the Jews that there was one all-powerful God from whose massive mind comes the uniform, ordered universe. Makes sense, doesn't it? For science to work, it must assume that the universe is organized by a unifying principle, an idea that doesn't appear until the early 6th century BC. It was Thales, a pre-Socratic Miletian philosopher of the same era who saw that the singular texts and the singular God it described suggested the principle of no contradiction. If God created a universe, then it had to be ordered and uniform. And so in the person of Thales and the subsequent Socratic thinkers, the famous transition from mythos to logos takes place. Logos is a way of explanation concentrated around argument, what Aristotle later formalizes as logic, in which an arguer can be brought around to the other side of a logical dispute simply by being shown the contradiction in his argument. It's humbling to know the close causal historical connection between monotheism and modern science. So historically, because of the transition in thinking, the mythic, disproven, and the unfalsifiable were all deemed false, and this became the predominant mode of thinking in the Western world. So the merits of myth discussed last episode still pertain and allow us to appreciate the unknowable, the unknown, the sacred, the mysterious, and to be humble in the face of the unfalsifiable. But at the same time, we need logos so that we aren't trapped in sediment, slave to our passions, and open to having our ideas being proven false. If we navigate both with nuance, we're better for it. Despite thinking in this mode, even Aristotle recognized that there was more to capturing the hearts of men than just logos. He posited three three forms of connecting with your audience, ethos, logos, and pathos. According to Aristotle, there are three persuasive appeals, ethos, logos, and pathos. Ethos is how you convince an audience of your credibility. Logos is the use of logic and reason. This method can employ rhetorical devices such as analogies, examples, and citations of research, but it's not just facts and figures. It's also the structure and content of the speech itself. The point is to use factual knowledge to convince the audience. And finally, Pathos appeals to emotion, and in our age of mass media, it's often the most effective mode. Pathos is neither inherently good nor bad, but it may be irrational and unpredictable. It can just as easily rally people for peace as incite them to war. So using that framework, maybe I can explain my reaction to Wonder Woman. If you've been listening to this show at any length, I think you get that I'm a lover of Logos. That's my primary mode of thinking, and it is of special appeal to me. I've loved Superman all my life, but I didn't make a website about the comic the animated series Smallville or Superman Returns. No, what stood out to me about Man of Steel was not just how it delivered on what I wanted, but how it was exceptional in its extremely robust realism. Again and again, it would get at the why of Superman. Nearly any question or inquiry raised could be solved by delving deeper into reality. And that logical consistency was something unique and appealing to me, and something that I had to talk about and share. So consistent was the film in its adoption 
adoption of Logos many times, it would make the realistic or logical choice, even at the expense of what the audience would want or expect. There was an integrity to that that I admired and enjoyed. I always believed that it couldn't and wouldn't last, and I think I said as much back in episode 14. So, for me, BVS was confronting at first. There were and are some questions of internal logic, but it still captured me in its mastery of ethos. BVS draws authority from citation, philosophy, art, comics, reality, and so on. It eschews accessibility and the popular conceptions of the characters as a source of authority and credibility in favor of its expression. Being challenging is a part of its beauty and its appeal. And so again, I appreciated the integrity of that. BVS is special to me for that reason. So what of Wonder Woman? It's obvious, right? Wonder Woman mastered and delivered on pathos, heart, emotion, feeling, and personal connection. Now to be clear, all these films have all of these, but their emphasis is different and their accessibility is different. Drawn into the logic and the reality of Man of Steel, I could appreciate the emotion more and honor the credibility of its risky integrity and loving the characters, ethics, values, philosophy, and authority of BVS. I can appreciate how coherent most of the logic and experience real emotion from the film. With Wonder Woman, Pathos is the most accessible of the three, the most powerful of the three, the most effective of the three is greatly emphasized. The emotional content is unquestionable and deftly used. Wonder Woman also draws authority and credibility from a very authentic, popular understanding of Wonder Woman. And the logic, well, the logic is good enough. It took me time to appreciate BVS as much as I do now, and Wonder Woman is very conventional in its treatment of logic, but that's because of the power of pathos over the other two. Wonder Woman endeavors to make you love it, and once you do, well, what's the idiom? Love is blind. You don't see the faults, or they become easily forgiven. Things raised as faults in other films become completely petty in the light of love. Conversations in costumes? Jenkins was very measured in how often we saw Diana only in the armor and what she said while she was in it. The vast majority of her dialogue isn't as the costumed Wonder Woman. Speaking of which, is that name ever uttered? Well, is it an embarrassment? No, of course not, but it isn't raised as a criticism against a film that's loved. And these are nothing, of course. As we discussed last episode, C.S. Lewis changed tracks from the logic of apologetics to the pathos of symbol and emotions of fiction in order to grab and persuade his audience, coming to find the latter more effective overall. We know this because emotion and pathos can override everything else. You can have more experience, more authority, better arguments, better proofs, and, guess what, still lose to passion and sentiment. So much of my job is trying to de-escalate passions, to restore and return rationality to the table, so I'm inherently skeptical of pathos, but I can't deny its importance, effectiveness, appeal, and accessibility. Especially Especially in terms of the latter, pathos is very visceral, immediate, and almost inherently trusted. It takes time to evaluate somebody's credibility, their authority, their expertise, their ethics, or philosophy. You need a lot of domain knowledge to process all of that accurately if you're going to go beyond anything but a gut reaction, prejudice, or bias. Similarly, it can be difficult to parse facts, figures, and arguments, especially when we're so bad at intuiting logic and so prone to so many fallacies and biases. But emotion, what you feel, it's instant. It can't be helped, and we nearly always accept it as right whether it is or not. And anything that appeals to that primarily, affects that, targets that, is absolutely going to be more accessible, have greater appeal, be more effective, and in turn, be of importance. 
where the end product or goal is a good thing, this is a good thing. So even if my bias against pathos creeps in, I recognize and I appreciate its power for good, as well as the art of employing it. A stirring speech can move mountains that a binder of metrics might not. And all of that power was intentionally fostered, cultivated, harnessed, and mastered by Jenkins, and a big part of the resulting reception. Not only did audiences feel what Jenkins wanted them to feel, but she gave them what they wanted to see and what they thought they should see, tapping into or exploiting their desirability and confirmation biases both. We don't have time to discuss those links in the show notes unpacking those biases, but contrasted against other DC films, if you're shown something you didn't think you should have been shown, disconfirming your beliefs, or you're shown something you didn't want to be shown, something undesired, even if executed with a vision and with integrity, the science shows that we're prone to unfair bias against it. And I want to emphasize unfair, because we're not just talking about subjective taste, we're saying that once you cross that, neuroscience says that you treat it negatively beyond what the facts support. Anyways, when people talk about execution, or sometimes story, very often they don't actually mean those words literally, but they're really defaulting to a pathos standard. For execution, they often really mean clarity and positive feeling, irrespective if the actual intention was ambiguity or negative feelings like anxiety. Even if actually executed with exactly the intended amount of information and feeling, if they aren't spoon-fed clarity and they aren't manipulated to feel positive feelings, they'll challenge the execution. And even when the argument is challenged by the information being there or available for inference, they blame the execution for making them not care enough to absorb the information or come to the conclusion or not forcing them to feel something expected. Another word for expectations might be appetite, and the timing and the delivery to line up with appetite can satisfy in a way that transcends normal metrics. Hunger, after all, is the best seasoning. A meal at the exact right time, at the peak of desire, is going to get praised for its execution in a way that the exact same meal might be criticized or unwelcome immediately after a buffet. There has been a hunger for many aspects of this film, both intrinsic and extrinsic, that is more than the sum of its parts in terms of reception. But I'm getting off track. Accessibility is absolutely to be celebrated here. Two main reasons. First, this is the first Wonder Woman film. On principle, it should be accessible. Superman and Batman didn't need that this time around. A half century later, we're still watching Batman 66. 40 years later, we're still watching Superman 78. Man of Steel and BVS are expansions of that pre-existing public consciousness and mythos. Challenging it, changing it, and exploring it to keep it from going stale, static, or dead. Wonder Woman, though, needed bedrock, something solid, classic, and enduring, and that's what we got. Second, it's all about connection. It's a waste to watch these movies, read comics, or do anything if you aren't connecting to others. Man of Steel and Batman v Superman definitely allow for valuable, deep connections, but it made broad ones a little more difficult. Wonder Woman absolutely allows for broad connections, and I know for millions of people deeply touched by the film, deep ones as well. These connections can lead to lifelong friendships, families, and good works. Decades from now, people will still be talking about how they got into DC, found their favorite characters, learned to love these films, and so on, because the first superhero film that completely captured them was Wonder Woman. And that's incredibly awesome and has to be cherished. It doesn't matter 
If there weren't complex moral dilemmas or philosophical debate, it only needed to grab you and make you feel something to inspire, especially if you're a younger audience member. Not every comic book should be Watchmen. Not every fantasy story should be Lord of the Rings. You grow up reading comic strips before you read anything like Watchmen. You've heard a hundred fairy tales before you make it through Lord of the Rings. There are merits to both challenging and accessible works. Now, real quick, I've asserted that the emphasis for Wonder Woman was emotion, and I believe that's corroborated by a couple of interviews Patty Jenkins has given. I've got too many here to quote, but the three that stand out come from Fandango and Collider. In an interview with Fandango, Jenkins said regarding the No Man's Land scene, quote, it's my favorite scene in the movie. It's the most important scene in the movie. It's also the scene that made the least sense to other people going in. When I really started to hunger in on the significance of No Man's Land, there were a couple of people who were deep deeply confused, wondering like, well, what is she going to do? How many bullets can she fight? And I kept saying, it's not about that. This is a different scene than that. This is a scene about her becoming Wonder Woman, end quote. In an interview with Collider, Jenkins said regarding changes from the first cut, quote, I think what I ended up finding about the final battle was that I was hitting the emotional points for Diana that I really wanted to hit, but I felt a craving for some other kinds of emotional gratification and engagement that we try to accentuate even more. End quote. In the same interview, Jenkins said regarding debates about Diana's age, Oh my God, have I had that conversation. Ad nauseum. Because the truth was I kept talking about, listen, this is her coming of age story. How is she coming of age and how long does it take to learn these lessons? End quote. The impression that I get is that Jenkins stuck to her guns on how she wanted to tell her story. And that was through an emotional lens. She was challenged on the logistics and the plausibility of the no man's land scene. And her reply was not how practical it would be within the reality of the story, but what the symbolic and emotional impact was. Many of the questions and challenges challenges and confusions about this film come in the final battle with Ares. But instead of exposition or information or clarification, Jenkins put a premium on accenting emotional gratification and engagement. Finally, the logistics of aging, training, and timelines. Jenkins hand waves it all and says, I'm sick of this conversation. What's important is the audience resonating with her coming of age story, not facts, figures, charts, tables, and timelines. Work those out yourself if they're so important to you. Now, in my opinion, you can often do both, but it's valid to prioritize one over the other, and when you do, you get different results. In a big picture, you might say that Man of Steel, to me, is like a documentary with incredible journalistic integrity, refusing to rosy up the picture. Batman v Superman is a compelling debate, with the integrity not to stack the deck. Suicide Squad is a punk rock song by earnest people who've charmed you, and Wonder Woman is a bedtime story told by someone who loves you. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. So that was a long preamble, because I want you to understand that when I lay into the logic of Wonder Woman, it isn't a criticism of merit or quality or value. It's simply an approach, my approach. This is fantasy, and it's not for anyone other than the person having the fantasy. So why do I say that Wonder Woman is a bedtime story or a fairy tale? It's because it's the only way that I can logically reconcile, contain, forgive, understand, or explain how this movie challenged me from its very first frame. And 
and it's kind of instructive of the whole film. So we're definitely not doing a scene-by-scene analysis or commentary, but the first few frames illustrate a point, I think. After the logos, do you remember what's the first thing we see? It's a rendering of Earth from space. I have to say rendering because it isn't. It can't be literal. The clouds are all wrong. They're thicker than Earth's atmosphere. This is Earth as if it were in a cartoon or a storybook. And what am I relying upon when I say this isn't what Earth looks like? Well, I'm relying on science, truth, and precedent in the prior films. This isn't what Earth looks like from space in real life. Links in the show notes. This isn't what Earth looks like in these DC films, as we've seen it, literally, in every film. Countless times in Man of Steel, with the nuke scene in BVS, and in Suicide Squad when the machine lashes out. Wonder Woman's Earth is distinctly different, objectively inaccurate, and intentionally stylized. And perhaps this is signaling that this isn't a scientific or reliable narrative. This isn't like the prior films. You know how the world looks from space, but this is how it looks in our story. This stylized Earth is like there once upon a time. This stylized Earth is similar to the pearl out of place in BVS, casting a dream over the scene ending with young Bruce lifted to the light. But it's quarantined from the film by two indications. Bruce's narration and the on-screen text, Mankind is introduced to the Superman. Only during the opening scene does Bruce provide a voiceover narration that is not directed to a known in-story recipient, and the on-screen text shows that the story has shifted away from Bruce's telling. Contrast this against Wonder Woman. The film begins and ends with her narration, speaking to an unknown audience with no break or division to escape the frame. So it's plausible to claim that the entire film is her unreliable reconstruction of events. Therefore, any errors are hers rather than breaks in reality or even in the film. There's maybe another clue that the entire film is Diana telling a story. When we see the history of the Olympians, it starts out as a painting within a folder, and by By the way, that's not a book. Binding paper into a codex wouldn't come until the Middle Ages, so Diana would have read her texts from scrolls. Anyways, while we can't rule out the painting magically coming to life, literally, diegetically, within the world of the story before Diana's eyes, based on how we see the history and how it's intercut with other scenes on the island taking place at other times, it seems much more likely this living painting is entirely for the benefit of the audience. It may be what was in Diana's mind's eye what she imagined, but it isn't what other onlookers in that world would see as Hippolyta tells her story. So this suggests and reinforces the idea that Diana is our storyteller for the film, with her opening and closing narrations and drawing us into the history the way she imagined it as a child. It's hardly necessary to interpret the film this way, but it's a view that reconciles it with the other films and their commonly shared reality. While it's my preference that Diana is a documentarian who is absolutely accurate in her recounting, in the same way that Jenkins would put emotional impact before factual accuracy or internal consistency, Diana has the same storytelling impulses, which are common and could even be said to have been inherited from Hippolyta. I don't know why the filmmakers chose characters from history and then confounded that history with contradictory events, but whatever their reasons, we can impute the same to Diana as she retells her story. To further the bedtime story analogy, consider how the story filters reality. Hippolyta lived the events of Diana's bedtime story, with all the blood, guts, and horror of that reality, but the story related to Diana is sanitized of those things, even at the expense of reality. Similarly, I imagine 
imagine Diana living and knowing her own story in its full grisly truth, but also seeing and knowing her audience, looking out at a sea of faces with little girls and boys younger than 13 sitting there, smiling to herself, and in her wisdom, toning down the tale rounding off the corners, sanding down the grit, lighting up the darkness, minimizing the blood, simplifying, amplifying, and weaving a tale of heroism, humor, and heart fit for them and their time, even if not absolutely true or even especially real. And that could explain why the story forwards ideas like chemistry is magic, because that's not real or true, but it's what 10-year-old kids may feel like or believe. To them, the word hydrogen may be as mysterious, magical, and unknowable as any incantation or sci-fi technobabble. It addresses a lot of anachronisms, like using contractions, and other gaps in the logos of this lovingly tailored tales telling. This is my catch-all, my universal explanation, like the scene from The Simpsons where Lucy Lawless fields questions on the inconsistencies in Xena. Next question. Yes, over here. Right. In episode BF12, you were battling barbarians while riding a winged Appaloosa. Yet in the very next scene, my dear, you're clearly atop a winged Arabian, please to explain it. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, whenever you notice something like that, a wizard did it. I see. All right, yes. But in episode AG4... Wizard. Ah, for glaving out loud. <laughs> As that clip shows, such an answer, even if it technically works, is unsatisfying to the people asking. So, in the same way that Jenkins seeks to deliver on emotional gratification and engagement, let me try to do my best to address some of the questions about Wonder Woman with logic, which is hopefully interesting. So, let's just quickly look at those questions. How old is Diana? Can Diana return to Themyscira? Why didn't they tell Diana the truth? Why didn't they go with Diana? Did she want to leave early? When did she develop her powers? Why did Ares reveal himself? How does the lasso work? How did Ares defeat the Olympians? Why didn't Ares destroy mankind sooner? What does Ares want? What is love? Is Ares the source of mankind's corruption? Does seeing Ares change Diana's belief? Does Diana love Ares? Why kill him? Why doesn't Diana reveal herself after World War I? Did Diana walk away from mankind? What did Diana do for 100 years? What moves Diana to act? Why doesn't she have the same powers in her fight against Doomsday? And why does Diana finally go public? So we're going to respond to all of these for the rest of this episode, starting with how old is Diana? So to be honest, I don't have an answer for this one because the research was way too diverting. And because Jenkins herself in that same Collider interview quoted above jumps between Diana being a thousand years old, a child or 800 years old. And by the end, she just says, quote unquote, everyone has a different opinion. Again, emphasizing her disinterest in these kinds of mechanical logistics. So while it's difficult to divine an intention that doesn't exist, you can still try to reconcile as much of the movie as possible to pinpoint a time. And I haven't done that. Really, I just raised this because I wanted to talk about an interaction between two interesting lines. In her language duel with Samir, Diana wins by saying, but can you recite Socrates in ancient Greek? Sammy can't, but consider the implications of this line for a second. This means that Diana knows about Socrates. And more than that, she knows that this world would too. That means she was sequestered only after the teachings and fame of Socrates took root, enough that she she could make a reference in 1918 and expect 
her reference to be understood. Then again, she does this with Cleo's volumes, expecting Steve to know the reference, so maybe this is just her presumption. Either way, it puts sequestration at about 300 BC or later. Note also all the inbuilt assumptions I've made with that conclusion. I'm assuming that there's no influx of additional information from man's world. Hippolyta says all has been quiet ever since, and additionally she says you will train her harder than any Amazon before, with the purpose of preparing her for Ares. If the Amazons were aware of advances in the outside world, those advances would have been a part of Diana's training for Ares. For example, they didn't prepare Diana for guns because they didn't know about guns. Okay, so far so good, no contradictions yet, except on the boat, Diana doesn't know what marriage is. The institution or the idea of marriage certainly existed by the time of Socrates. In one of his most famous quotes, he says, quote, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher, end quote which isn't so much wisdom as it was an observation about his own infamously contentious marriage. Moreover, if Diana had actually studied Greek philosophy for a thousand years to the point of recitation, I'd expect her to have a different outlook on life, unless she's someone who isn't really affected by what she reads. For example, she chides Charlie, saying, How do you know who you kill if you can't see their face? You fight without honor. But the Iliad doesn't just honor Achilles, but instead Odysseus, a trickster hero who is lauded for not fighting fair or face to face. How does Diana feel about firing flaming arrows? Were the Amazons studying faces then? And didn't Antiope say something about battles being fair? Diana must have internalized this because there's nothing fair about her advantage of strength and speed against mere mortal German soldiers, which she deploys without hesitation. Nonetheless, she begrudges Charlie his advantage of range and accuracy. Now, in truth, not knowing about marriage is probably an unintended contradiction, and it goes no deeper than that. But let's say we want to reconcile the two, and maybe in the process, learn more about the Amazons. One of the ways you could do that is claim that the Amazons believe in censorship. The most obvious evidence of this is with respect to Diana's origins and upbringing. Depending on their view of mankind, there may have been heavy redaction, the exclusion of any reference to marriage perhaps. Note that redactions would be solely for Diana and her narrowly tailored education. After all, Diana is the only child. The other Amazons already know and lived true history. They don't need to learn it like Diana did. And there's other reasons that her education might be lacking. Themyscira is in a paradise or an Eden that contravenes the change, transformation, and philosophy of the tree of knowledge or our modern assumptions of change. Do a thought experiment. Say it's the year 1570. The 1670. Whatever. It yeah. doesn't matter. And you've got some person living back then. Maybe he's got a horse. If he's lucky, he's got a cart. And think of his world. If he needs to cook something, he cooks over a fire. When he has to go to the bathroom. Just poops in a hole. Poops in a hole in the ground. There's no running water. There's no flush toilets. This is his world. Okay. Okay. So we have our delivery man. He's, he's in your head. His world is in your head. Now it's time for that thought experiment. Imagine that delivery man falls asleep for hundreds of years. He wakes up. He's in the United States. It's the 1800s. He gets up. He looks around. And he sees a world that looks like not that different from the world he fell asleep in. Yeah, there's still horses and carts. He's still walking a long way, cooking over a fire, pooping in a hole in the ground. So, you know, hundreds of years have passed and 
not that much has changed. Because up until about 1800 or so, things did not change that much from year to year or even from century to century. Now, thought experiment part two. Same delivery guy gets tired again. In 1870, takes a nap for 70 years. Short by his standards, wakes up in 1940. He wakes up in a world that is completely transformed. They would not believe that you could pick up an instrument and talk to somebody a hundred or a thousand miles away on the telephone. They wouldn't know that to illuminate a room, you could turn a switch. They would be flabbergasted to look up at the sky and see objects flying in the sky, some of which had... No more pooping in holes in the ground, right? Now there are flush toilets. There are cars driving around everywhere. Our guy even has a truck. Kitchen now. A kitchen is like a thing, right? Now there's a refrigerator, which is never... no more fire. Stove, no more fire. And if you go to a city, you look up and they're just like these ridiculous, impossibly tall buildings. And the point of this whole thought experiment, the point is this. For hundreds of years, hardly any change at all. And then in this one lifetime, just this one single span, everything changes. There is just this complete transformation. It really is just extraordinary how much changes, how fast at this moment. The Amazons seem completely content with essentially a static world. They aren't constantly improving their technology, society, or teachings. They maintain a perpetual state of equilibrium in basically every regard. There's a magical view of immortality, but that's another show. The point is, no one on the island needs to be taught besides Diana, who has no classmates and manages to make Amazon tutors quit. Education may have been a low priority, and Diana was disinterested. Even if Diana is a bridge to a greater understanding between all men, she wasn't trained in diplomacy, philosophy, persuasion, or history. The emphasis was entirely martial. We never get the impression that Diana spent much time in her books or dreaming about the outside world. Why would she? She literally lives in paradise. She's beloved. She has a purpose, a single-minded focus on becoming a warrior like everyone else she admires. She dreams of applying those talents, but those dreams would be just as satisfied by a Spartan invasion as by venturing into the world. All her life, she's been told she's in paradise. She isn't somebody brought into a world of suffering and looking for relief in another country, another world, another life, or beyond. That kind of contentment means little impetus to change, grow, or evolve. So in that kind of setting, she herself may de-emphasize or neglect her studies as basically irrelevant. So let's look at why she left. Even from Hippolyta's stories, she must understand that there is death and suffering in the world. But the mere existence of that didn't move her to say, I must go into the world. She also knows Ares' story, but she doesn't feel compelled to go into the world to hunt him down. She knows the four ordinance of the Amazons. She knows that they were created to restore peace, to be a bridge, but she has no impetus or drive or intention of accomplishing these things based on her bubble alone. It's only once paradise is pierced. New information, new stimuli, new beliefs and philosophies enter the picture, seeing it come to their shores, which stirs her to action. This makes me believe that if Diana had read philosophy extensively before, she would have been moved, because note how quickly she takes in, repeats, and enacts all the philosophy she encounters on her journey. You can either do nothing or do something. Everyone's fighting their own battle. It's not about deserve, it's what you believe. These aren't new lessons unknown to ancient philosophers, but now she has the context to see them and the maturity to apply them, and they transform her. As she says, I will never be the same. So the reconciliation is that she never truly read Socrates, either because of redaction or neglect, or it had no impact on her, which is why she doesn't know what marriage is. This reconciliation also gives us insight into why the Amazons are so passive despite their history and talent
talents and virtues. If Diana's teachings were actually reflective of the Amazons, why weren't there other Amazons wishing to volunteer? Why weren't there other Amazons wishing to return to man's world to fulfill their four ordinates, bring peace, and be a bridge? Once Diana had broken the seal and was going to leave regardless, why didn't any Amazon go with her? It's because Themyscira is actually paradise for them. And while they'll give their lives for one another in battle, they won't give up paradise for mankind. It's a rational choice for a people without purpose. They were created by the gods, but the gods are dead. They were created for mankind, but they do not deserve them. They were created to defeat Ares, but Zeus's last act was not to implore them to defeat Ares in a final charge. Instead, it was to hide them from Ares and the eyes of mankind. In essence, their last divine mandate was to hide and survive, and that is what Hippolyta has upheld. So let's turn to the next question. Can Diana return to Themyscira? The movie is ambiguous. The novelization is not. It makes it fairly clear that if she leaves the island, it will be hidden from her. But I have some reasons to doubt that interpretation. It comes from a short exchange after interrogating Steve. Should we let him go and risk him bringing more men to our shores? If leaving the island makes it so that you may never return, such that it is impossible, then what is Hippolyta afraid of? Where's the risk? Let Steve go and then there's no possibility of him bringing more men because he may never return. No, I believe that Hippolyta understands the working of the island better than the audience member, and so her fear is grounded in that knowledge, that it is well and truly possible to return to the island after leaving. However, there is a way to reconcile the two lines, and that is if Diana is the sole source of the breach, meaning that as long as Diana stays on the island, the mascara will be accessible to the outside world. But as the source of the breach, if she leaves, no one in the outside world will be able to access it. And this might be a small part of why Hippolyta lets Diana go, or why Antiope implores Diana to go. Think about it. Antiope never got to hear Steve's testimony. So none of her motives come from the cost or the scale of the war. She only knows that the island has been breached. Similarly, Hippolyta is essentially unmoved by Steve's story. She knows about the cost and the scale, but doesn't consider it worth Amazonian lives. Which is to say, Amazonian lives are worth more than their war. But she knows that Amazonian lives are at risk so long as Diana stays. In a way, it's chillingly utilitarian. If their true mission is to end Ares, and they believe Diana can do it, why should she go out into the world? Isn't it better that she stay at the Mascara with the Amazons as allies and the home field advantage? Why shouldn't they let Ares find Diana and come to them in their place of strength? And the answer is because the Amazons have lost their purpose, belief, and faith. If you expect to win, letting Ares come to them is the better strategy than sending Diana alone into the unknown against the unknown. However, if you expect to lose, if you don't think Diana can win, then it's a choice of her dying along with her sisters on Themyscira or Diana dying alone in the unknown against the unknown, while her sisters remain protected protected in their bubble. If Hippolyta hoped to see Diana again, the send-off would not have been her greatest sorrow. Hippolyta asked Diana to be worthy of Antiope's tiara. But what did Antiope do last? She sacrificed herself. Hippolyta isn't imploring Diana to great heights of victory and glory. She's noting that Diana will be an even greater sacrifice for the safety of all Amazons. Diana, in her naivety, doesn't understand and says, I will. But Hippolyta shakes her head no. It's incredibly dark, which is why it's glossed over immediately with the antics on the boat. But basically, you have to reach this conclusion 
conclusion to understand why the Amazons don't help Diana or tell her the truth. They aren't expecting her to succeed. If they were, it wouldn't be hard to set up a protocol to enable Diana's jubilant return. They could make an appointment every solstice to meet at the edge of the bubble to return if she wishes, or whatever. The bottom line is that it was presented as goodbye because it was goodbye. They expected Diana to die. That's why they didn't go. Anyone going would just be another casualty instead of aid to Diana's mission. They have the same understanding presented by Ares, that for all their talents, training, and experience, only a god can kill a god. So they were of no use in that conflict. But could they not have been helpful in other ways, the same way that Trevor's reinforcements were? But the Amazons had ceased thinking in those terms. Maybe. Food for thought. Of course, the metaphorical and emotional reason no one is joining her is the coming-of-age story. Because when you chase your dreams of being an actor, an artist, or doing something daring on the edge of adulthood, in the coming-of-age story, your family and home typically don't go with you. Moving on. Why didn't they tell Diana the truth? Why was it hidden from her all her life and even in her farewell? You've seen this objection before, right? If her destiny is to face Ares, why wouldn't you equip her with the relevant information and truth so that she can best prepare herself for her destiny? And here, we have to recognize that this is a supernatural issue. It isn't about information. If it were about information, you could just do what the critics allege. You tell Diana the truth and you add whatever cautions and warnings you need to add. You tell Diana not to go around telling people she's looking for Ares. You tell her what Ares looks like so she can recognize him. You tell her to be careful. But we have many hints that this is not an informational issue. The first time we hear about the fear that Ares will find her is when teenage Diana is caught training. Hippolytus says the stronger she gets, the sooner he will find her. So in this context, they're on the island and Diana isn't expected to leave or go anywhere. Excluding the supernatural and magic, Diana getting stronger should have no impact on Ares finding her. Maybe it ties into knowledge. The stronger Diana gets, the more she knows about her own godhood. But in this context, she's still on the island going nowhere. Yet the fear is real and tangible to Hippolyta. Diana growing in isolation, knowing in isolation, nonetheless triggers Ares' ability to find Diana. And this has to be supernatural. And it does make sense in the context of God's beliefs and powers. As Diana grows in strength, grows in faith in herself, she grows powers. First, the bracelet blast, then seeing time slowed, then a long leap, then the strength to shatter stone and bend steel, and so on and so forth. We know that Diana is just discovering these powers. The novelization makes it explicit, but you can reason your way there from the healer remarking on Diana's discovery. If Diana was actually trained 10 times harder than any other Amazon, I guarantee there would be wounds and injuries in that process. And Diana recovering would not be strange if she had demonstrated it before. So her accelerated healing is a newly manifested power along with the other ones. And obviously the performances also sell the powers as surprising, and their introduction compromises her hiding and makes her known to Ares. At first, we see that there is no faith in Ares. Hippolyta has her doubts. You speak of a time that may never come. He might never return. He could have died from his wounds. But she shifts in her faith. Diana was taught the stories, but who's to say how deeply she believed them until she began showing supernatural powers and Steve showed up on her shores? As raised earlier, if she was truly convicted that their foreordinance was to stop Ares and she truly believed Ares was in the world, why wasn't she petitioning to go out into the world earlier? 
and the theory is because she suddenly believed in Ares more strongly. Originally, I had a dozen more examples that I wanted to walk through, but I was cheated out of them by the novelization, which makes it explicit. Ares tells Diana, in a line deleted from the film, that he was going to destroy her when she first arrived, but then he had felt something that he hadn't felt in a thousand years, stronger. In another variation of an in-film line, he says, All these years I've been struggling to regain my power, only to realize that the very weapon that my father created to destroy me not only could restore me to the god that I once was, but was actually the thing I needed most. Consider the difference between Diana's belief in a bedtime story a few days earlier and the complete conviction Diana had in the existence of Ares as she gave up Themyscira to hunt him down. She was his most ardent and faithful believer, and a god herself to boot. The power of her belief fueled Ares. There are so many applications to this insight in reconciling things across these films. For example, consider BVS. Lex is good at his metahuman research, right? And what he's doing is highly illegal, but he hasn't been caught, he hasn't been compromised, and no one else knows what he's doing, else he'd be held accountable for it. Not to mention, the nature of his discoveries are in and of themselves of a world-changing magnitude. As established by the film, Diana doesn't have the same military-grade equipment Lex uses to secure his data. Okay, so here's the question. How does Diana ever catch wind that Lex knew about her in the first place? She's not a hacker, she's not military intelligence, and Lex's research is entirely passive. Camera footage and the acquisition of an image. It's a one-sided digital voyeurism she has no hopes of being aware of, much less responding to or investigating. However, as an Olympian, let's say that Diana has powers similar to Ares, at least insofar as belief and knowledge interact. In the same way Ares might have felt something and suddenly apprehended Diana when she came to sincerely perceive and believe in the god of war, imagine Diana cataloging artifacts when she suddenly feels a chill up her spine and knows Lex has put two and two together and believes. Maybe not that she's a god, but definitely a mortal. And the more Lex knows, the sooner Diana can find him. Basically, the same power that gave Ares awareness of Diana and her movements gives Diana the same awareness over Lex, which is why she can have a quote-unquote plan that relies on stealing what Bruce was going to steal. That's not something you can plausibly plan in advance based on normal mortal knowledge, but it makes perfect sense if she has supernatural perception of events. We'd have to address how Bruce's knowledge doesn't seem to affect Diana, and maybe that's because he doesn't know what he's looking at. I thought she was with you. Whereas Lex seems to know exactly what Diana is. The basis of our myths, gods among men on our little blue planet here. This lines up with Hippolyta saying that it's a graduated effect, that the more she knows, the faster he finds her. Maybe. As Lex grew bolder and more brash, he did start to leave more breadcrumbs, which is how Lois could unravel a lot of his plot. Perhaps he was pushing it in inviting Diana to the fundraiser, or maybe he did something else to garner her attention. Perhaps Diana intercepting Bruce's efforts was just a target of opportunity and unplanned. BVS can still be internally consistent without Wonder Woman to interpret it, but ultimately we don't know. Wonder Woman definitely adds to the canon interesting insights if you interpret it with her experience, but that's 
that's another episode. One of the most interesting consequences of Wonder Woman for me is how it reinforces and redeems a lot of Suicide Squad's insights into the ancient gods of this world. It's actually remarkably consistent. Let's just go through a few examples. So for the sake of discussion, let's just call Enchantress, Incubus, and Diablo gods in the same vein as Ares, Zeus, and Diana. We can split hairs on a definition debate, but I don't want to derail on that. All source ancient supernatural power that was worshipped. As Incubus says, we were gods to them. Enchantress is over 6,000 years old and was found in a cave dating back to 10,000 BC. While not in the film, the Suicide Squad novelization leans more heavily into the idea of deities, and Incubus is initially worried that God won't stand for their plans, suggesting a hierarchy of these beings just like with the Greek pantheon. Like Ares, left too weak, Enchantress was depowered and weak throughout most of recorded history. And like Ares, she still had the power to influence people. Ares describes it as whispering into their ears. The Argus report on June Moon's possession describes it as an otherworldly draw, causing June to free Enchantress against her archaeological training. Ludendorff says that Ares requires human sacrifice and Enchantress's skull is filled with skulls. They share so many powers in common. Enchantress can teleport. Ares travels from London to Belgium instantly. Both can create visions of offers. Enchantress tempts the squad and Ares shows Diana paradise. They all can form outfits spontaneously. Both sets of gods draw power from and wield lightning. Incubus grows from touching the third rail, and Enchantress's machine destroys man's army with supernatural lightning that doesn't behave like lightning, just as Ares pulls lightning from the sky and throws lightning that doesn't behave like lightning. Both are affected by magical artifacts, Katana's sword and the Lariat of Hestia. Both have tendril-like attacks, both have telekinesis and underutilize it, both draw power from other gods. Enchantress helps Incubus grow, and Incubus in turn saves and the evolves Enchantress. Ares draws power from Diana and can only accomplish his dream with her power. Likewise, Diana feeds off him and is capable of feats in conflict with Ares that she doesn't demonstrate against Doomsday. This may suggest that Ares killing off the other gods also weakened himself in the process. And man, there is more to this list, but this is getting too long. What I really want to do is talk about their common psychology, but let's just briefly talk about Zeus, Diablo, and Diana. Let's first compare Diablo and Diana who are essentially demigods in the ancient Greek tradition. In Greek myth, there were five ages of man, golden, silver, bronze, heroic, and iron. Link in the show notes for more information, but note that an idea common to the heroic age was that anyone could turn out to be a demigod. So as these stories were starting, every locale had their own local legends and demigod stories, often meant to be telling their own tale of the son of Zeus. But as the stories traveled and were collected, suddenly Zeus had a lot of sons, and under a modern lens, he's perceived as promiscuous. But originally, they were individual tales of singular divine heirs. While not totally relevant, I raise it because this film sort of takes that track. That Diana is incredibly special, unique, and the sole heir to the Olympians, rather than just another also-ran among a litter of half-breeds, right? Anyways, Diablo, out of seemingly nowhere, being a demigod capable of taking on a god in single combat, was very much a trope 
of the heroic age, and a continual theme throughout these films that you shouldn't be so quick to judge because you don't know what lies underneath. So comparing Diana to Diablo, obviously they both have latent natures and powers hidden even to themselves, yet confident in their own abilities. Their powers get pushed by extreme emotions, provoking Diablo, trying to get you there, threatening to take his family, provoking Diana. You expect the battle to be fair and Steve being taken from her. Both are able to see through visions. Diablo breaks the spell of Enchantress and pulls the others out. Diana isn't seduced by the vision of paradise. Both get characterized as metahumans by others. So given how these films share so much in common, maybe we can extend some from one to the other for our theories. For example, while the story is that Zeus created mankind and the Amazons, that creates a number of issues we don't have time to get into here. But let's look at how Enchantress makes the eyes of the adversary. She's able to transform and mind wipe normal human beings into something else. So if mankind pre-existed, but Zeus has a more benign or more sophisticated version of the same power, he could be credited with, for example, creating the Amazons without necessarily bringing them to life from nothing. So his transformation of mankind lets him take credit, even if he isn't the originator. Maybe it's only a theory. One last note on how the demigods tend to fit in with Greek myth, and that is how the abstract powers grow increasingly human. The primordial gods like Chaos, Earth, and Sky, Gaia and Uranus, are overthrown by the Titans led by Kronos, and then the Titans get overthrown by the Olympians led by Zeus, and the last of the Olympians is slain by the god-killer, the demigoddess Diana, just as Diablo is key in killing off another South American god. Enchantress seems to have a heightened awareness of this cycle, and like Ares, tries to put it in reverse. She says, But it is our time. The sun is setting and the magic rises. The metahumans are a sign of change. And with that, let's get back to the psychology of the gods and how that can cover a lot of alleged errors in their endgames. From the sample that we have, it seems like the gods care about family. Enchantress cares for her brother and Ares is envious of Zeus's love for mankind. The novelization has some on-the-nose lines that emphasizes further. The gods are petty and vengeful, both wanting to wipe out swaths of humanity to rule the earth. They are ancient, but lacking in wisdom. They have this deep understanding of human psychology to a point, able to manipulate, hold hostage, tempt, seduce, and so on, but that insight suddenly seems to fall off a cliff where they're making statements and offers that make them seem suddenly stupid or oblivious. Enchantress seems to think that the psychopath Harley Quinn is sincere, or Ares taunting Diana with the death of Steve to try to get her on his side seems so completely out of place. If these ills were isolated to any one enemy, then it'd be an issue. But seeing as how it's common to all gods, it instead seems to make a sort of sense. For example, both gods could have completely dominated their opponents with their powers, especially telekinesis, to end the other in an instant. But in both cases, they have this inclination towards unnecessary physical combat at the peak of their possible victories. They are instead goaded into primitive physical fighting that's basically beneath them. 
This isn't what you'd expect if you want to win, but that's also common to both of them is that they don't want to kill their opponents. In Suicide Squad, the conflict only begins when Enchantress tells Incubus to make them bow. She doesn't want them dead, she wants them at her feet. And that same desire ends up being her undoing when she's already stripped them of their weapons and instead of instantly killing them, she offers them a final opportunity to serve her. In Wonder Woman, when Ares is still bound by the Lariat of Hestia, he says, My dear, I don't want to fight you. And if we take him at his word as sincere, and that's a discussion for another time, maybe a little later in this episode, he doesn't want to fight Diana or see her dead, even if he could easily crush her early in the fight. Instead, what he really wants is what he said he wants, for Diana to join him as a god so that they can reclaim the earth for the gods. He spends the fight not trying to defeat her, but trying to draw out her divinity, trying to provoke her to greater heights of power and passion, and to pass judgment on mankind as a god can and has the authority to do. Even with these intentions though, these gods are clumsy at them, and in giving the heroes a fighting chance, they bring back their own primitive selves. Despite all their psychological savvy when not fighting, they become petty and unhinged when agitated. They're a little like Vandal Savage, who should be so wise with all his time walking the earth, but in the end, he can't help but default to his inner caveman when in conflict. And it's a signal that this is a common defect in the makeup of the gods, like the engineered of Krypton that make them unsuitable for Earth in this era. The Olympians had their chance. As much as they want to take the world backwards, the trend has been towards ever more human entities, from the Olympians to the demigods and now to the metahumans. This is important because it explains why Ares doesn't simply leave Diana B. Many think that he simply wanted to corrupt her to make her disillusioned and doubt everything, and if that was his motive, he should have never confronted her after she killed Ludendorff and nothing changed. He should have just let her stew in her crisis of faith. And if he could get away with it, he should have whispered destructive thoughts to her or to those around her. But the reason Ares doesn't just take it slow is because he needs her to believe two things. Yes, that man is fallen, but also that she is a god. If he only convinces her of the first thing, she loses faith in herself in the Olympians and disbelieves the existence of Ares, and he becomes too weak to recruit her to his side. Further, Diana is at a pivotal moment when she's seen the worst of mankind, but barely has seen them at their best. If Ares waits too long, when she recovers from the shock, even if she's jaded, she will start to see mankind's light, and she will have been inoculated to the darkness, and she'll be beyond the influence of Ares. This was a unique opportunity to reclaim his former godhood that he was just too jealous for. So he had to stoke the fires of Diana's belief, even if he kind of unravels in the end like the gods of old seem to. We'll come back to all this, let's put a pin in it, but let's quickly look at Ares some more, and by the end we'll be able to put together why Diana doesn't fly against Doomsday, and what it means to walk away from mankind and more. I could do an entire episode on Ares, but I won't. Let's just run through some points quickly. Everything we know about Ares basically comes from two sources. Apolita and Ares himself. And they concur on basically everything except two points, the corruptibility of mankind and the nature of the god killer. Apolita forwards the narrative that mankind is fallen solely because of Ares and misleads Diana into believing that the god killer is a sword. But it's implied that Hippolyta knows the truth about the first part, especially as it pertains to mankind deserving Diana, and we know she knows the truth about the second part. If Ares doesn't start wars and doesn't make mankind use weapons and isn't a god worshipped anymore for war, it's plausible that he can sincerely release his claim to the title God of War and pick up the title of the God of Truth. Nothing he says 
is a blatant falsehood any more than anything Steve Trevor says is a lie while tied by the lasso of truth. For example, if you strictly construe truth as also meaning accuracy in a literal, absolute, mathematical, or Boolean sense, then Steve lies several times during his interrogation. He says, four years, 25 million dead, describing the length and the death toll. But if you forced him to, he could probably be more accurate or give a more exact time frame. And in an absolute sense, there is a precisely true death toll, even if unknown to him. Nonetheless, the lasso which compels him to tell the truth allows allows him to give sincere estimates that illustrate his point even if he could summon more accurate or more true figures or even if more accurate or more true figures exist outside his knowledge. The lasso compels you to tell the truth that is true enough. So the fact that Ares may say, for example, gone and left you nothing, even if in an absolute mathematical sense Trevor did in fact leave her a watch or more metaphysical things, he can still say left you nothing because it's true enough. Another way to say it is this, instead of seeing if what was said could be deemed false, ask, could it be deemed true in some way? If so, it seems the lasso and the title still let you say it. Psychologist Richard Nisbet works at the University of Michigan. We come from a long tradition handed down from the Greeks that a proposition is either true or false. And if there is a contradiction, one of those propositions must be wrong. Nisbet studies reasoning and errors in reasoning, and in our conversation he told us something that helped me see this story differently. He says this need we have to find the right or the wrong of whatever we're looking at, that's just a cultural habit baked into the logic system handed down to us from the Greeks. At the base of Western reasoning are some principles like A is A and not A, and both A and not A can't be the case. So either black bears are dangerous or they're not dangerous. They can't be both dangerous and not dangerous at the same time, because that's a contradiction, and we're contradiction-phobic. Right. But Nisbet says this isn't the only way to look at the world. For instance, in Chinese philosophy and in much of East Asian cultures today. The assumption is that if there's contradiction, both may be right, or both may be wrong, and each side should move toward the middle. Do you think that this kind of tradition we have in Western cultures of seeing the world in this zero-sum way, do you think that has costs? Well, I do. I think we are inclined to reject what other people say too quickly because we've decided that what they're saying contradicts something that we believe, and so we simply reject it. And maybe it actually doesn't contradict it, or maybe it's describing another aspect of reality. So Hippolyta and Ares both agree that Ares was envious of mankind, despised them, and wished to see them destroyed. Hippolyta says his mission is an endless war to destroy mankind, and Ares says they deserve to burn. Both confirm Ares killed the gods. Hippolyta says he killed them one by one. Ares says they refused to see how evil mankind was, so he destroyed them. Both confirm that Ares was greatly weakened fighting Zeus. Hippolyta says he was forced to retreat, and Ares says he was too weak to stop mankind. All these years, he struggled alone, only whispering and creating the armistice. So since these stories sync up from two opposing parties, we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss any of these elements as complete fabrications. 
Ares adds additional insights on top of the bedtime story, though. He claims that he had no part in humanity's corruption and that they were always that way. He explicitly says they've always been weak, cruel, selfish, and capable of the greatest horrors, meaning that they were that way without his influence. He also makes it his mission and motive to reveal the truth to the other gods who couldn't or didn't see it. This provides a possible insight into why Ares might be able to defeat the other gods and why Diana could defeat Ares. So obviously, it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to quantify combat between magical mythological entities wielding the power of love and hate. But people always want to apply transitive logic to combat, and it bothers them that Ares could defeat the entire pantheon of Olympians, including Zeus, but somehow Diana is able to defeat Ares when Zeus could not. We've discussed transitive logic in combat before in a previous episode, we won't do it again, but instead, let's do a tale of the tape and compare and contrast combatants. So we've got nature, status, basis, and knowledge. Nature, you have gods versus demigods. Status, you have belief, emotions, and injuries. Basis, you have love versus conflict, hate, or war. And finally, knowledge, training, and experience in one's own power. So right off the bat, Ares and the Olympians seem mostly toe-to-toe. They're all gods, not demigods. They have roughly equivalent experience being gods. And our X factors are the basis and the status. Diana defeats Ares with the power of love, as in many fantasy films, taking the metaphorical and making it literal through magic. Jenkins said that in the Collider interview about Diana's force shield. Quote, the thing that's actually shielding her in the end is her own love. She's exuding a change in attitude, which makes her impervious to his power. End quote. Insofar as hatred and anger are concerned, it's pretty clear cut. We see both Ares and Diana get power boosts on that basis. But what about love? What does Diana mean? What is love? And here I resist any Roxbury references, but I will rant a little. So while I've come to appreciate the sincerity and commitment to an emotional approach, I admit I rolled my eyes a little when Diana said she believes in love. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against love. How could you be? If you are, you find yourself on the wrong side of that debate most times. But if relying on it as a basis for defeating Ares alone, it seems to create a contradiction. Is Diana's belief greater than the goddess of love Aphrodite or Eros? We talk about the power of Zeus, but what about his love as their supposed creator and protector? In terms of self-sacrifice, Zeus seems to deeply love mankind if he's willing to watch his entire pantheon fall one by one for the sake of mankind. At no point did Zeus say, stop, enough. He stood in the defense of mankind to his dying breath. Is that not love? Is that love any less than Diana's? So part of the reason I rolled my eyes is love is such an indefinite term in human English. It's a catch-all for a litany of different feelings, emotions, and relationships, and not all of them positive, which can mean extremely different things to different people. It's very hard to have a meeting of the minds on what that means. Two star-crossed teens from Verona talking about love may say it's the only thing in the world worth living for and worth dying for if departed. And I think most people with just a little bit of perspective might say, your concept of love is a little skewed, maybe not 100% there. So it's very important to understand what is Diana talking about? The English-speaking audience has probably broadly broken it down into this broad affinity for all mankind versus romantic love for another individual, which is why, to some, it seems like she's simply slaying Ares after shortly seeing Steve. And that's why I'm so very curious how this line gets translated in other markets 
markets with more distinct terms for love. In ancient Greek, there were numerous distinct words for various concepts under this umbrella. You're probably familiar with at least a few of them. Eros, for that romantic, erotic love. Or philia, loyalty between close friends, which is distinguishable from agape, unconditional, absolute love for all mankind. There's so many concepts, like mania, a one-sided obsession not necessarily reciprocated. And I'll put a link in the show notes where you can read all these interesting distinctions yourself. And the point is, when Diana says, I believe in love, what does she mean? And I think some people come to a very simplistic conclusion that this belief is incompatible with Batman v Superman. And I find that just ridiculous because love is so complex. Briefly, here's a clip on how love is framed in the West and how it might be better framed in another way. I would like to argue that many of the metaphors we use to talk about love, maybe even most of them are a problem. So in love, we fall. We're struck. We are crushed. We swoon, we burn with passion. Love makes us crazy and it makes us sick. Our hearts ache and then they break. So our metaphors equate the experience of loving someone to extreme violence or illness. <laughs> they do. And they position us as the victims of unforeseen and totally unavoidable circumstances. So my favorite one of these is smitten. And if you look this word up in the dictionary, you will see that it can be defined as both grievous affliction and to be very much in love. So I tend to associate the word smite with a very particular context, which is the word that the Bible uses for the vengeance of an angry God. So here we are using the same word to talk about love that we use to explain a plague of locusts. So Johnson and Lakoff suggest a new metaphor for love. Love is a collaborative work of art. And I really like this way of thinking about love. Johnson and Lakoff talk about everything that collaborating on a work of art entails. Effort, compromise, patience, shared goals. So if love is a collaborative work of art, then love is an aesthetic experience. Love is unpredictable. Love is creative. Love requires communication and discipline. It is frustrating and emotionally demanding. And love involves both joy and pain. Ultimately, each experience of love is different. Now, that's just a proposal and not one that necessarily has any traction, but the point is that love does not have to be framed in such simplistic terms. And that's one of the ways of addressing the problem of evil, which can be summarized as if you have an omnipotent God who loves you, there should be no suffering. It's similar to the alleged contradiction of Diana saying, I believe in love and I walked away from mankind. And I don't think those things have to be in contradiction. They're only in contradiction if you have a very simplistic idea of love, which is that if I love you, I can't, I don't, I won't walk away from you. And you just have to live in this life for a couple of years, just have a little bit of experience to be not so sheltered or in your bubble to know that absolutely isn't true. There are so many times that isn't true, that isn't what happens. This is part of the film universe's themes, that we shouldn't rush to judge, because we don't know what battles everyone is fighting, the pains of their past, or what they're going through. You may love working on something genuinely, with all your heart, sincerely putting in all your passion, time, energy, interests, and effort into something. But then with the loss of a loved one, come to have to walk away for others, for yourself, for the work. It doesn't mean that you didn't love the work, that you stopped loving the work, or that you never loved the work. It shows that love doesn't always dictate behavior in always obvious ways. That's why it's ridiculous to say, okay, if she believes in love, well, that means she's got to be running around in costume. She has to be saving every suffering person that she meets, and she's got to be intervening in World War II and other global events. That's such an 
unsophisticated way of looking at love. There's so many times that you love, but do something that doesn't line up with the simplistic viewpoint. How many of the men in World War I loved their families, their spouses, their children in an immediate and tangible way, but nonetheless went to war? You could frame that as, I believe in love, I love my family, nonetheless I walked away towards a war to face nearly certain or likely death. In a simplistic view, you'd say, no, 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 the thing that you love, you never walk away from it. But that doesn't even bear itself out in the film. Diana leaves the only home that she's ever known, Themyscira, her mother, Hippolyta, and her sisters. And they let her go. Many parents have to say to their kids, I love you, and that's why I have to leave or walk away for your best interests. Many biological parents giving up their kids want to be with them, want to stay with them, believe in the hopes that the child will be better provided for. It's not what they want, but what they need, and it doesn't negate their love. Saying love means you don't walk away is not sophisticated, accurate, realistic, or a true way of looking at love. It isn't always so standardized or so straightforward. And I think we first need to determine what she means by love because if we don't know, can we really say that it contradicts BVS? Of course not. I think it goes back to identity. I think it goes back to that final battle that is both metaphorical and literal. Ares spends so much of the fight trying to stoke the flames of Diana's belief and fury. He says, let's see what kind of god you really are. Is that all you have to offer? He needs her to believe two things simultaneously. One, that she's a god, and two, mankind deserve destruction. The two go hand in hand. Ares wants her to be absolute in power, capricious, and to pass judgment on these mortals as only gods can. That is your calling as a god. You are entitled to judge the earth, to damn humanity, and based on everything you've seen, you should. You've seen the truth of what they are and what they deserve. Over the course of their fight, he untaps her divine powers and causes her to rage against men, and he tries to crystallize the choice by presenting Dr. Maru. Logos. The fact is, Maru is guilty and her death would spare future lives. Moreover, Diana has killed already without issue. Ethos. Maru has wronged Diana. She is an enemy and they are at war. She is an example of mankind's corruption where is Diana is an immortal heir to the Olympians, a god. She has the authority, justification, and entitlement to kill Maru. And pathos. Diana feels grief and anger, which could easily translate into hate towards Maru, and she has no shortage of feelings to provoke her. But Diana dismantles Ares' argument. With respect to mankind, unlike the Olympians, Diana definitely sees that they've fallen. She agrees with Ares. They are everything you say. And a quick aside on this, many critics point out that after Diana kills Lucy, Ludendorff, she realizes mankind isn't innocent or under the influence of Ares, but that with the reveal that Ares still lives, she would have immediately reinstated her belief that mankind was at war only because of Ares. But that's ignoring this explicit statement and the impact of enlightenment on Diana. The facts were always there that Ares wasn't the sole source of corruption in the world. If she had read history and philosophy, it would have been there. Simply as an Amazon, she had to understand human nature. All of the Amazons had lied to her. None of them had volunteered to go. None of them followed the mandate they had impressed upon her all her life. And Diana herself knew rebellion, lies, conspiracy, violence, fear, pride, apathy, and wrath on the island. These came out as she trained in secret, or as Hippolyta responded to men on their shores. If all these things were within herself, untouched by Ares, or in the Amazons around her, brought to life by Zeus to fight the effects of Ares, who himself was a divine being containing these things, then isn't it probable that mankind contain these things too, without the influence of Ares? It is no coincidence that seeing her own error in 
judgment is what suddenly allows her to see mankind's innate darkness. When she realizes the truth, the bell cannot be unrung. Another way of looking at it is from Steve's perspective. Throughout the film, he's been skeptical that Ares exists or is to blame. However, once he sees Ares, Steve doesn't suddenly believe that Ares is the source of all man's evil, right? If he did, he wouldn't have to take the plane. London is four hours away. He has faith in Diana defeating Ares. You can save the world. So if he believed that Ares dying would suddenly turn all men good, he didn't have to take the plane. The pilots already aboard would do the right and good thing. If seeing Ares suddenly flipped Steve's belief, he could have just sat back and waited for Utopia. But if Steve didn't believe just seeing Ares, why do so many assume that Diana's enlightenment would be undone? Even knowing that Ares is alive does not remove the realization that mankind is to blame for its own ills. But Diana isn't. When Steve confesses that they are all to blame, Diana denies this and says, I am not. And that's exactly what Ares needs to hear. As an outsider, as a god, she can and should judge mankind, blameless for their downfall. But Diana disagrees that mankind is only darkness, and literally and metaphorically, Diana refuses to judge mankind as a god. Diana defeats Ares by embracing the truth. Yes, they are everything he says they are, and yes, he is her brother. She doesn't deny her past or her identity when she calls him brother. Note, however, despite her hidden past, she was never called to be a god. Only Ares has that design, plan, or purpose for her. No, she is the god killer. She will end the Olympians, and she will not replace them. As the god killer, she forsakes her godhood. As much as she is entitled to judge or to play or literally be a god, instead she chooses to love, which takes the form of grace, unearned, unmerited favor. And as a reinforcement of this identity discussion, it's important to note that Diana's authority to kill Ares comes from her god killer status, a divine right and assignment, and not the power of love. This isn't a circumstance where she extends love to her enemy. Diana acknowledging Ares was her brother was in recognition of the truth of her own identity, not an assertion of fraternity to Ares. Now, maybe there was some pity there, but not love. The film is not saying that having love in your heart gives you the authority to kill your enemies. So long as you really, really love your boyfriend, it's okay to kill people you deem bad guys. No, that's not the point. After all, she doesn't use that power of mercy or forgiveness to extend anything to Ares except his own end. No, she says goodbye, but that is in her capacity as God killer. And note that that's an identity that she doesn't give away. As the last Olympian, she rejects the mantle of divinity. She doesn't try to save the world as the goddess of peace, love, or truth, but she never rejects being the god killer. No, because in gaining insight into the ills of mankind, she saw the same in godhood. Just as man could be corrupt, that same darkness and decision existed in the Olympians, in Ares, and in herself, as well as any new would-be gods that would come along. I've killed things from other worlds before. Yes, she believes in doing good and in love, but in this case, doing good means denying her divinity. Why? Because Olympians are tribal, Olympians take sides, and she's now wise enough to know that evil can lurk among the allies, and that she could be driven to kill a man innocent of her accusations. It sounds easy to say that she should participate in World War II and take out Hitler, but when a single death can precipitate so much suffering and uncertainty, and when you have to cut through swaths of humanity to do it, who is she to judge? After she's done decimating 
invading Germany, does she fight for Chief's people against Steve's people? It's one thing to fight an outside threat, gods and things from other worlds. It's another thing to entirely choose a side, which mankind forces her to do. Any action or intervention as a goddess in the modern world sets one side against another. As an Olympian, she could do that without having to justify herself. But because she believes in love, she chooses not to intervene as a goddess in the world where man doesn't stand together. In her personal capacity as an individual, she can do good, give, stay, and fight. But it is without the authority of Olympus. She acts not as an emissary or an object of worship, but behind the scenes and in the shadows. In Batman v Superman, when she meets Bruce Wayne, she already knows he's Batman, and his costume and his crusade aren't a source of inspiration. She isn't moved by him because he's a vigilante in the shadows, and she already has that. She can do that. She's already helping while hidden. Similarly, when Diana sees mankind introduced to the Superman, she also isn't moved, because she sees Superman suffering exactly what she was trying to avoid. To paraphrase a certain seagull, the price of being misunderstood, they call you a devil or they call you God. Alone out there, Superman was worshipped and condemned. He was hindered by disbelief and warped by those who would take his action to be tribal. Acting on a Superman scale seemed to divide the onlookers and tear mankind apart, thus failing to be a bridge to greater understanding between all men. The nightmare scene shows one potential path a Superman-styled godhood leads to, a world where Superman loses his humanizing love, people wear his mark, bow at his feet, tremble at his arrival. There is no hesitation to judge and execute because he's playing God. He's entitled to terrorize the world. This is the fate that Diana seeks to avoid by denying her godhood. This is the love that she's showing mankind by choosing to walk away. The critic will claim that this is inconsistent with believing in love or against Diana's character, that she couldn't stand by while seeing others suffer, that she would always act, and that makes Wonder Woman inconsistent with BVS or a retcon at best. Well, we've already debunked the idea that love always looks the way that you expect it to. There's a fairy tale about a daughter that tells her father her love for him is like salt, which explores this idea. That aside, note the faulty reasoning of the critic, that Diana can't abide in action or seeing suffering. While we've already established that Diana was inactive on the island almost her entire life, she could have been indoctrinated for thousands of years without yearning to save mankind. A century of horrors is a blink of an eye by comparison. And with regards to suffering, not only have we seen Diana ignore suffering, but inflict suffering on others in the name of utilitarianism. It is for the sake of killing Ares and ending all evil that she felt it was justified to hurt and kill those in her way. And granted, she has cause to be humbled by the factual errors afterwards, but it doesn't change the fact that some suffering for the greater good is entirely ethical in her sense of justice. If it wasn't, she couldn't be a warrior. So in a practical sense, what does Diana's life look like for a hundred years? She lives essentially a normal mortal life, helping, loving, giving as a normal mortal might. When she uses her powers, she does so in secret, so as not to attract attention and worship. When she uses her powers, it's when the stakes are small and personal, or when she can call on her authority as god killer to eliminate things from other worlds, things which all mankind would stand together against. Those circumstances are far and few between, explaining the wistful smile of satisfaction in using her god-given gifts and precious personal training, once again against Doomsday. And as a bit of an aside, when you watch this movie again, notice how young Diana is always forging forward so fast as to not lose faith or be discouraged. But in the process, she forgets to really say farewell. From Diana's perspective looking backwards, she failed to say goodbye to Hippolyta. She failed to say goodbye to Steve. She didn't know what she had until it was already gone. And I wonder if that isn't part of her affinity for the past, looking backwards to appreciate what you have before it's lost to time. So if this is Diana during the hundred years, what finally moves her to act? First, it is Batman 
Batman recovering the image and sharing others like her and the nature of the doomsday threat. In BVS, Diana sees the lightning streaming from the scout ship but doesn't do anything. She considers briefly if this is for her, but the threat is undefined and there are cameras everywhere. Diana suppresses any urge to act and instead goes up to her room to pack for her flight. In her room, the flickering lights and the news reports show that the scope of this event is serious and still ongoing. Diana still doesn't rush to act, but deliberately stops packing to look for more information online. Literally, the first thing she pulls up is about the scout ship. Part of her is looking for an excuse to act, otherwise she could have simply not looked. While she's reading, she gets Batman's email. It's the photo. She focuses in on herself, remembering how she once was, and scrolls past it a little fast, perhaps slightly ashamed. How would Steve or the others look at her now, so hesitant to act compared to the headstrong one they couldn't hold back? Reading the email, she now knows that Bruce knows too. If her powers draw from belief or knowledge, the circle has just expanded some. And if her concern is exposure, her secret is already out to two of the most powerful men in the world. Then it's the videos. The very first one she clicks on is the Flash, a man whose powers match perfectly with the ancient myth of the messenger god, and who exhibits its supernatural lightning so familiar to Diana from her encounter with Ares. Her jaw literally drops. She may no longer be the last Olympian. There may be others. The next video is practically Poseidon in the flesh. Are these other heirs? Does she have to hunt them down to end the Olympians once and for all? But wiser now, she has empathy. Couldn't they just be trying to live their lives like her? Staying hidden, in the shadows, refusing to come out to the world as gods. Perhaps they don't want to be found. The final video is familiar and horrifying. Hasn't she seen a similar artifact on the island? Everything is too much to process. She closes the laptop in a hurry and packs, needing to return home to regroup, research, and reconsider everything, her mind swirling with new information. As she boards her flight, the news gives Diana her first glimpse of Doomsday, essentially defining the threat. It's no longer an abstract unknown lightning show, but a monster to be slain. Diana watches pensively, debating whether or not to act. Doomsday destroys the news crew, and the decision is made. There are no cameras to assert her godhood, and from everything Batman's email revealed, the world was changing, and even if she were to be seen, she might not be alone. And finally, the picture was a reminder of Steve. She had already tried doing nothing for a hundred years. Maybe it was time to don her regalia once again. And so she does, and helps to defeat Doomsday. Now before we get to what causes her not just to don the armor again, but come into the light, I do want to touch on her powers fighting Doomsday. The easy analysis is that BVS came first, and so that it's a retcon or a continuity gaffe. And that's based on the assumption that if Diana had the powers against Ares, she'd still have them and want to use them against Doomsday. Powers like flight, super speed, energy redirection, and the force field seem like they would have been beneficial against Doomsday. Diana could have used flight and super speed to avoid Doomsday's counterpunches or redirect his energy attacks back at him. However, we've built up many ways to reconcile the two scenes. For example, Diana says that Doomsday feeds off energy, so that would take lightning attacks, if any, off the menu. We know for a fact that Diana's powers are fueled by emotions. They may feed off them as well. However, as essentially as zombie, it's plausible that Doomsday doesn't feel any particular emotions. Diana, as well, isn't as emotionally invested in this battle as her younger self against Ares. Even in her fight against Ares, it wasn't until Steve died that she could summon the strength to break her bonds. So it may well be that Diana literally cannot bring out the same power in this kind of fight. We also talked about the ties between belief and power, and the symbiotic relationship that Diana had with Ares, each boosting the other's strength. If our theory of Diana Diana denying her divinity for a century is right, 
then belief in that aspect of herself would have been diminished. Note that superheroes often have a subtle relationship between belief and powers as well. Superman can't fully be Superman if he's not supported and if everyone is against him. Batman can't be Batman without Gotham's support and belief. And there's also internal belief in oneself or willpower. So much of Superman's strongest feats aren't solidly tied to some sort of measurable metric. Outside of the need that it be done, the belief that he could do it, and the effort to try. When Superman needs to push harder, he doesn't gain mass or acceleration. It supernaturally comes out of his will. The belief that it needs to be done and will be done and it is done. So likewise, maybe Diana can't fly against Doomsday, but she might unlock the ability again as the world is introduced to Wonder Woman. Alternatively, until Diana squares how her divine nature is to interact with the world, she may consider those abilities as an inaccessible part of herself until she can reconcile the two. So the theory predicts that as people become more aware of the superheroes and as the superheroes grow secure in their role in this world, more of their powers will be unlocked. And in a sense, that's exactly what we see in the comics, cartoons, and other ongoing continuities. Awareness and belief fuels superhero power creep. So much so that even Batman benefits, as we may know from the inerrant Batgut rendition years ago. So we talked about why Diana deems it worthy to fight, but what makes her come out into the light? Why does she say at the end of Wonder Woman after BVS that she stays, fights, gives forever for the way the world can be? She says, this is my mission now forever. She doesn't say, this has been my mission ever since. So what changed from fighting with Ares to fighting with Doomsday until now? I believe it's Superman's death, Bruce's invitation, and finally a reflection on the past. After fighting Ares, Diana loves the world by walking away as a deity. She obviously does not literally walk away. Unless her position and her possessions were all acquired overnight, Diana has been in man's world for some time. However, when she says, I walked away from mankind, she's speaking as Wonder Woman, because Bruce isn't asking for help from a curator or antiquities dealer. He's talking about fighting. He's talking about the sword-wielding woman who stood with him on the battlefield. Diana hid that aspect of herself from mankind, having come to the same conclusion as Jonathan Kent. Jonathan asked Clark to consider the consequences on the world before revealing his secret. There's more here at stake than just us and our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. Diana does the same. She doesn't upend the world by confronting them with her divinity, her powers, her immortality, with the supernatural or her knowledge. She doesn't demand worship or dictate reality or determine their lives. Throughout these DC films, note the characters that don't care about upending humanity. Jor-El nearly didn't care. He said he will be a god to them. Even so, Jor-El knew enough to know that his own genetically determined impulses might might not be right for Earth. So he planned that Cal should be raised human and decide together with humanity whether or not to be a god. That's why Jor-El did his best to not indoctrinate young Kal-El. Otherwise, we'd be seeing a Superman with a god complex, which is what we saw in the nightmare scene, Superman playing god. Nonetheless, Jor-El still sent his son smashing into Earth in a way that could have completely upended the planet had Cal not been recovered by the humble and thoughtful Kents. Jor-El didn't care, and Zod clearly did and where are they now? Krypton had its chance. Enchantress and Incubus clearly do not care if humanity is confronted with an existential crisis. 
They well and truly ravage Midway City without regard for what their impact is. After all, they come from a time when the implicit assumption was that the gods were real, cruel, and capricious. They have no time for the psychological angst of non-believers. And note that it's the U.S. government that tries to hide the nature of the event by calling it terrorism. Think about that. The government would rather spread a story of terror than confront the world with the supernatural. Is that fear founded? Well, maybe. Look at how much havoc Lex Luthor caused because of his existential crisis. That's how serious confronting the world with the supernatural is. But Enchantress and Incubus didn't care. And where are they now? In the end, they're undone by a psychotic psychiatrist with a more modern understanding of the mind. Enchantress had her chance. Ares has been hidden among men for thousands of years. He knows that they're disbelieving, he knows their doubts, just as he knows Diana. But in his attack on the airfield, he doesn't hide his nature at all. He doesn't really care if the revelation of real Olympians creates a crisis among humans. Ares isn't chasing down witnesses who could testify to his coming or reality. Ares didn't care, and where is he now? Mount Olympus had its chance. There's a way to work Lex into this pattern, but I'm going to skip him in favor of Diana. While Diana acted as an Amazon or as an heir to the Olympians, again, like all those other expired and extinct peoples, she didn't care about what her confrontation with mankind would cause. She didn't hide her abilities, her history, her assertions of the supernatural. Crusades and holy wars have been fought over less evidence, and these could have upended the world if Steve hadn't helped her be more discreet. Diana the Amazon didn't care. And where are the Amazons now? As much as many want to condemn Jonathan Kent or cheer on those who stride into the world unconcerned about collateral, the films show us again and again that's an old and extinct way of thinking. That caring about your impact on the world, even beyond yourself, your immediate surroundings, your senses, is our responsibility today. Jonathan proves that when he gives his life, and Superman proves that when he follows in his father's footsteps and does the same. The death of Superman changes the world and it changes Diana. By dying, he's no longer a stand-in for divinity, but instead, he's a mortal martyr, a hero, a superhero. It's only when the concept of superhero gets created that they can all now act in the light without being deemed gods and creating an existential crisis. Because unlike gods, superheroes can die, superheroes can be stopped, and they're here to help and they'll die trying. Superman dying breaks the existential fears that these beings are gods, and his sacrifice creates the assumption of their benevolence. Diana attends Clark's funeral. She recognizes what he did, but is still uncertain about her position, which is why she pushes back against Bruce's initial attempts at recruitment. However, Bruce raises several crucial points. First, that there are others. None of them have to be alone. Second, that there is an outside threat. Diana does not want to divide mankind, but a threat that unites metahumans is a threat that unites mankind, and they can fight it without existential angst. Third, he wants to stand together. This recalls Diana's upbringing to be a bridge to greater understanding between all mankind. And fourth and finally, men are still good. He reminds Diana of their light and implores her for her help. Even after all of this, however, Diana returns to her routine in Paris rather than preparing plans with Bruce stateside. So one last thing is needed, and it's Diana reflecting upon her story once more. Remember, as an immortal, it's incredibly easy to get set in your ways, especially if you become jaded to change. However, Bruce, bringing Steve back to her, reminds Diana of a time when she was open to change, open to action, open to a new world. 
Forcing Diana to confront an age when she intervened makes her reevaluate whether she can do so again, now as Wonder Woman. And upon reflection, she makes the decision that we see at the end of Wonder Woman. She remembers that truth is what enabled her to see both the light and darkness in men and truly loved them, but that truth was tempered by grace and love. Steve was skeptical from the start, but he didn't shake her by the shoulders and cruelly confront her with the truth. Instead, he gently leads her to the truth as best he can. One of the best examples is when he challenges her when she's judgmental about a liar, a murderer, and a smuggler. I don't need to elaborate, you get the point. Diana's views were not immutable, and they were gradually changed with grace and love so that eventually she could see the truth. Likewise, the world wasn't ready for metahumans before, but through an act of grace and love, Superman giving his life for the world, the world sees the truth that he wasn't a god, but just somebody trying to do the right thing. And that means that while Diana was right to walk away before, now it is appropriate to act. Even if we think we know the truth, often the delivery and the timing matter more than the actual facts themselves. And this explains why Wonder Woman can leap into action at the end of her film, but may not have intervened so overtly in between. Okay, there are so many more questions, but I think I'm ready to wrap this up. It may seem that I'm harsh on the logic of the film, but I still took away so much good from it. And I do want to just quickly list off a few standout takeaways that make me love this film, despite the different style and approach. First, I love the Diana is able to show a range of attitudes and expressions because of where she was in the story. However, they don't shy away from human nature. Diana is hardly portrayed as morally perfect or superior. She makes mistakes. She shows a lot of cognitive biases, and the film doesn't pretend that there isn't power in negative feelings. There absolutely are times that rage, fear, and grief give us the ability to act when we otherwise couldn't. But it also shows that dwelling on those as your main mode of motivation ultimately leads to defeat. I love that there is encouragement for activism, the idea that a childlike faith can change the world, that so many times, even if we don't know everything, we know enough to act on our compassion. And I love that compassion, love, and grace are central to the story, that not judging others is literally the defining decision. doesn't matter if you know better, if you're more powerful, if you're entitled to your feelings or judgment, or even if they deserve it. The world would be saved if we treated one another with grace and love. And the fact is, most of the time, we don't know everyone's pain, their battles, their point of view from the vantage point of our own sheltered lives, even when we leave our bubbles. Most times, who are we to judge? I love that it shows another facet of the interplay between truth, power, and authority. And I have an entire spiel about that, but we'll save that for another time. It ties into some of the reservations I have about the no man's land scene. So that's something I don't want to just skim over, considering the importance of that to so many. And finally, this is a bit of a meta lesson but I love that the retcons here respect rather than replace the past. The most effective and accepted retcons are the ones that respect what was already there and blend it in such a way that both stories could be true for their time based on the available facts. The retcons that give the term its negative connotation, that get rejected or cause fans to riot, are the ones that replace what had already been in a disrespectful manner, essentially saying that the old story was a lie and never true, and that the new story is the only truth. This this was not a wholesale rewrite of the universe. This is very much in line with everything that's been laid down. 
Well, we've only scratched the surface of how Wonder Woman was remarkably consistent with the theme, story, and the world already established by Man of Steel, BVS, and even Suicide Squad, and I believe Justice League and beyond. I'm all for character-driven stories and filmmaker-driven films, but so long as they shared universes in play, even if they're different takes and tones, I do hope that they try to respect and integrate the past as they've done so well with Wonder Woman, and will continue to do so going forwards. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Some editing and notes. Why are you still here? This episode is already way too long. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry that this episode took so long to come out. It was recorded over two weeks ago, but I couldn't spare even an hour to sit down and cut this episode down. All sorts of uninteresting reasons. Work, life, flood, fire, power outages. But aside from all that, I was already intimidated by how long and incoherent the raw recording was. For context, the first recording was over twice as long as my raw recording for Suicide Squad. And I have less and less free time. But I love that Wonder Woman gave me a huge wealth of things to think about. That first viewing was filled with a lot of questions. And it's too early to call them plot holes, but let's just call them challenges. I feel like last episode, the fantasy episode, both prepared and plagued me while I was watching Wonder Woman. On the positive side, I had to acknowledge the emotion, accessibility, and fantasy in the same vein as C.S. Lewis. But on the challenging side, I had been primed with so much period historical knowledge, it really put my suspension of disbelief to the test. Additionally, the love of languages raised all sorts of issues. I definitely do not advise watching this film with a World War I buff who expects historical accuracy because the film is far from a documentary. Nonetheless, I do find facts and history fascinating, so I jotted down everything that the buff was telling me, everything that I saw related to my own research last episode, and then I did some follow-up research and verification, and I wanted to share it, but that meant over two hours of anachronisms, debunking details, and dry did-you-knows that were just so specific to interest in World War I and if I'm honest, would probably detract from the enjoyment of Wonder Woman for many. So I've cut all that material out, and I'm holding my tongue until Wonder Woman has been out longer. I'll probably wait until home release, and even then I don't know if I will. And I should also say that although it keeps coming up with Wonder Woman, the other films also diverge from real-world history in a significant way. They're set in a world without Superman, or at least Action Comics number one as we know it, mostly, right? I think it's safe to assume that Clark didn't have Superman comics to read growing up. But in BVS, there's the Easter egg where you can see Action Comics number one on Diana's bed. On one hand, that's arguably world-breaking, but if you want to find an apologetic that works, Diana does say she's killed things from other worlds. So maybe those comics are the spoils of battle, or maybe Diana went to another world and brought them back. I'm not really serious here. It's just an Easter egg. Come on. (laughs) 
I also didn't spend too much time talking about the actual historical story of the mythological Amazons because I don't have any really relevant analysis beyond spot the difference. It's easier to apply an analysis to the deliberate changes in the ancient Greek myth, but then I'd have to elaborate on what the original myth was and then get bogged down before even getting to the difference. I think the shorthand analysis that many are making is that this is a very Christian portrayal of pagan gods, and I tend to agree. But I'm skipping all that the same way I cut out the real history of belief in Hellenistic religion. It was originally in the Belief Fuels Power segment used to explain both Diana's age and how Ares defeats the other Olympians, basically tying it to the rise of Rome and correspondingly Mars with the decline of the other gods. But it got way too bogged down in history for something that was speculation upon speculation. A big portion of my notes that I didn't record at all was a list of hypocrisies or elements you might say positive reception overlooks in Wonder Woman despite being raised in other films. I did lightly touch on it and mention two in the episode, people talking in costume or the use of the superhero name, but there are more, oh so many more. But I take the film's point that even if you have the argument, even if you're outraged, and perhaps they deserve to be called out, it's better to take the high road, give grace, and let go. But man oh man is it hard. Even now, I want to run through the list, but I have to resist doing so. Moving on, a couple miscellaneous answers that got cut because the transitions were more clumsy than the answers. Is Ares dead? Yes, I think so, at least dead to the world for now. We didn't get into it, but part of the reason Ares is acting now is because humanity's capacity for destruction has crossed a certain threshold, where he can plausibly bring about the end of mankind. It's his stated end and desire. So my feeling is that if Ares is alive in our era of weapons of mass destruction, we shouldn't be. While Ares was certainly weak in his Sir Patrick persona, with today's weapons, technologies, and political structures, he's more than powerful enough to bring about World War III. Sir Patrick's powers alone were sufficient to launch a rogue ICBM, or assassinate a leader to cause the world to descend into a never-ending war exactly as he always desired. So the absence of those things, from my perspective, suggests that Ares isn't around for the time being. Another line of questions and answers that was cut out was basically explaining Steve's plan. Why didn't Steve do this or that with the airplane at the end? And I get many of the alternative plans in theory. Since London was four hours away and his plan didn't take four hours, he had a lot of time to play with before the timers went off. Steve tells Diana that she's going to save the world, so he believes that she's going to win. Steve also knows Diana is immune to the gas. So maybe Steve just has a little faith and waits for her to win, and then teaches Diana to take off. If it looks like Diana was going to lose, he doesn't need all four hours to enact his plan, he can just do it later. Or with all that time, maybe he can fashion a fuse, rustle up a parachute, or find some other way to save himself. Or he can look for somewhere uninhabited to land or unload his payload. In principle, these are all possibilities. But while evaluating a decision, like with the Man of Steel tornado scene, we have to look at what they actually knew in practice. Even if Diana is maybe better suited, Steve is sufficient for the task. And in his experience, the last time he took off in a plane, it crashed unexpectedly and prematurely. That wasn't part of the plan, but it happened. And the same thing could happen again with this much more dangerous plane. Steve's taking off from a hardened base that's been behind enemy lines and been occupied for over a year. It would have working telephone lines. One phone call and Steve is cut off, shot down, and everyone below him dies. Steve is on offense, so it's not like he can plot a course free of enemy 
enemy response. He's not omniscient. In the fog of war, this base was literally uncovered only minutes ago. Who knows what's between him and any course he could plot. For all he knows, there's an airstrip half a mile away, ready to chase down his bomber with faster fighters. And that's even if he comes back the way he came, the only path on which he has intel on what's on the ground. And the same applies to any strategies on the ground. Steve still has to hold the plane to keep the enemies from retaking it for anything that he tries on the ground or comes up with. And in the fog of war, he doesn't know if reinforcements are going to arrive from an auxiliary seconds later or what. Heck, there's a tank on this airfield, and those rarely appear alone. One could come storming out of a hangar any second. The movie could take time out to explain all of this, but that would kill the momentum with exposition. In his situation, his course of action was rational and plausible. Even if a different, ideal course of action could be conceived of, people make suboptimal, nonetheless completely reasonable choices all the time. All right, let's see. What else did I cut? Uh, this isn't an answer, but an observation. Basically, Diana is able to understand modern English, which wouldn't have existed when she was sequestered. I'll play you clips of medieval and old English. The drought of March hath pierced to the rotor and bathed every vein and switchly core of which Verdun gendered his the floor. Father Ura, Fufa Art and Havanum, see a thin Namaya Harcourt, Toba Kuma thin Richa, you worth a thin willa on earth and swasma on Havanum, a Calusus of Uvala, South Richa. Those were excerpts from the Canterbury Tales and the Lord's Prayer, and they're mostly unintelligible to our modern ears, so there must be some kind of magic operating on her linguistic ability, right? Well, if that's the case, why does she fall prey to linguistic ambiguity, like the front, the front of what? And this is a whole rabbit hole that goes even deeper when you add in history and culture, the Tower of Babel, and interjections about Neil Stephenson's snow crash. And of course, it was all edited out because I derailed it even further with my own history and stories of culture shock since English is not my first language. As is my prerogative, personal stories are always going to get the axe so long as I'm the editor. An unfortunate side effect of internet culture is the need to maintain a specific search engine presence professionally, so I'm careful to cultivate one apart from the other. There was a clip from that segment that I think I'm going to recover though, and that's Jesse Eisenberg's Little Mermaid story, which I'll tack onto the end as an extra. Another detour that's in my notes but wasn't recorded is a different attempt at the explanation of the reception for Wonder Woman in the context of the three books of wisdom from the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. I don't think I can get into it and still do the illustration justice, so I'll just put links in the show notes to the resources that I would have used. But on a similar note, I did quickly draw parallels between the quoted philosophies and some parables. You can either do nothing or do something, the Good Samaritan, everyone's fighting their own battles, the speck in the log, the mote in the beam, or the splinter in the plank. It's not about deserve, it's about about what you believe, and that's the entire Evangelion. But moving on, I cut all my ramblings on empowerment, but you can find links in the show notes to the resources that I refer to in those cut segments. I didn't record these, but I left out pages of challenges where I fight myself on whether these are inconsistencies or could have been fixed. But again, despite my joy in the appeal of logic, that doesn't mean that there isn't an art or effort in the application of emotion. But speaking of logos, I cut a segment on how I was bothered by how truth seemed to take a back seat for most of the film and how wisdom, a trait that I associate with Wonder Woman because of her immortality and calling as an ambassador, seemed to be lacking in 
some of the film. But then I convinced myself in that same discussion that Diana is on a journey, and like with Man of Steel, it's unfair to expect the fully formed character in her origin film. And wait, I was talking about Logos, right? Um, so basically, I expected more temperance from Diana in line with stoicism. And originally, I played a clip from Brett McKay's podcast linking these ideas, but Ted Ed just put out a video that summarizes it even better, and that's going to go on the end as an extra as well. And this also ties into a point that I cut out in the main episode, which was whether Wonder Woman should lead the Justice League. There is so much to recommend her, but in this iteration, at least as she is now and from what we have seen, I think she still has some of that old Olympian inclination in her, which makes her maybe unsuited in this era in the heat of battle. As much as she loves and embraces humanity, she's still an antiquated Amazon first when fighting. She doesn't act like a human with a century of modern tactical thinking when she dons her armor and draws her sword. You might not recall, but she's literally the first one to move in the Doomsday fight. She charges Doomsday, even before Doomsday moves, and Superman shoots after her seemingly to save her from herself, but that's another show. The point is, at least from what we've seen so far, Diana is a little like the gods, Vandal Savage, and those other extinct peoples in that she can be completely sophisticated as a civilian, internet, email, hacking, and hotels, first class, fast cars, and fashion, but when her blood boils and the fighting starts, she unravels just a little bit and time travels just a little bit, back to a time when a sword made more sense than shooting someone. And I'm absolutely okay with that as a character trait, which is echoed in many other iterations. But I'd like the leader to actively lead. From the front is fine, but she's got to coordinate, communicate, and not just act on her own. Like with the No Man's Land scene, Diana never intends to inspire. She doesn't ever say, follow me, or plan, or prepare, like, this is what we're going to do. She just does what she wants alone, and that happens to work out well, but it also could have gone awfully wrong the way she went about it. Nevertheless, we love a winner, and we forgive execution so long as we get the results that we want. We'll get to see Batman play well with others in the Justice League, but we've also seen slight glimpses of Superman's leadership more than the rest of the Trinity so far. Clark guides the oil rig workers out of the fire. Clark warns people to get inside in Smallville. Clark strides up confidently and explains the plan to stop Earth's terraforming and Clark tells Swanwick how it's going to be, and so on. So there's something there which can develop into a servant leadership that leads from the front, but still communicates with his comrades. And of course, I'm open to being wrong. Clark has had more on-screen opportunities to interact with others while in action. So maybe Batman and Wonder Woman will step it up. But one thing that I didn't get wrong was my utter faith that Gal Gadot would be up to the task and that Patty Jenkins would bring the heart. Even in my first viewing, midway through the film, I wanted so badly to shout, I told you so. I told you all along. <laughs> but that's more like Ares being a know-it-all, still trying to prove a point thousands of years later, than Diana, who is stubborn at times, but overall has the childlike virtue of being teachable, being open to correction, new facts, new ideas, new thoughts, and new experiences, which goes hand-in-hand hand with the ability to feel wonder, whether delighting in seeing her first baby, her first snowfall, or her first ice 
ice cream or adapting to alien fashion or culture. So obviously the film aligns the story so that she's sympathetic. If Steve had been an equally earnest German soldier or Diana had discovered Ares was Sir Patrick earlier, she easily could have found herself cutting through British and allied lives in the name of stopping all war and corruption. The fundamental certainty of her belief tempers my enjoyment of the no man's land scene, but even as I want to analyze it logically, I acknowledge that the most altruistic among us don't do so with that reasoning, or even any reasoning at all. And I think I have a clip for that too. I had a clip on the principles of evidence and hearsay, which I really want to work into an episode eventually, but this still isn't the right time or right place, even though Diana executes Ludendorff on almost no evidence. But that's another show. In fact, I regret that I forgot to record a disclaimer emphasizing that these are mostly theories, thought experiments, and exercises, not declarations of canon or insistences upon interpretation. Totally okay if you come to alternative conclusions that are more satisfactory to you for other reasons. For my sake, I prioritize logic and internal consistency, so the answers that I suggest attempt to reconcile that even before themes or simplicity or even creator intention. As I said, almost immediately up front, I think Jenkins doesn't really concern herself with much of this as much so long as the emotional effect is carefully communicated. But that doesn't mean that the effort isn't still interesting or entertaining for some. In a way, the most factually concrete analysis of the story is the most abstract analysis of Wonder Woman, because it isn't about logic in that way. So when I get to the analysis of the themes or emotions or values of Wonder Woman, those will actually feel more concrete. But at the pace that these episodes have been coming out, I'll be lucky to get one done before we get to Justice League. <laughs> Speaking of things that I forgot to record, normally I either do a lightning round to sum up the answers that we work through, so that's going to be the last thing I do before I throw this to some clips. So, how old is Diana? No one knows. Jenkins says opinions vary. I posit less than 2,500 years old. Can Diana return to Themyscira? Easily, no, but never say never. Why didn't they tell Diana the truth? What Hippolyta says is literally true. Diana knowing means Ares finding. Why didn't they go with Diana? The Amazons didn't have that purpose anymore and arguably believed that Diana was going to die. Otherwise, they could have created a protocol for her happy and expected return. Did she want to leave earlier? No, not from anything that we see. When did Diana develop powers? Seemingly with the bracelet blast onwards. Why did Ares reveal himself? What did Ares want? In order to reclaim his power and destroy all of mankind, he needed Diana to believe in gods, in him, in herself, to draw on her strength and together take the world. If he had waited, he'd weaken with her loss of faith and becoming immune to his argument once she saw the light in men after all this darkness. He had to act then or never. How does the lasso work? It seems to compel sincerity rather than truth as understood by later Greek philosophy. So, as long as it's true from a sincerely held point of view, the lasso will let you say it. And omissions? Let's not get into that. How did Ares defeat the Olympians? We don't know, but I suspect it had to do with a decline in faith and his own martial nature. There might have been an aspect of truth as well, since Ares says Diana is the first Olympian to see mankind for what they were since him. Himself. Why didn't Ares destroy mankind sooner? He says his battle with Zeus left him too weak. As to why he didn't try to stoke mankind's belief 
believe in him to gain strength. I suspect he knew he'd be susceptible to the Amazons or other similar heroes if he revealed himself while still weak. Remember, the Suicide Squad successfully took down two gods. What is love? Darling, don't damage Doc. Done. <laughs> Diana shows love to mankind by realizing it wasn't ready for Wonder Woman just yet. Doesn't matter how you interpret the gap or if you disagree with me, that much is true. The world doesn't know that there was a Wonder Woman. Is she with you? Maybe one day you'll tell me your story. Any explanation you come up with for that can cover the entire period. Is Ares the source of mankind's corruption? No, even the Amazons and the gods themselves could be corrupt. Does seeing Ares change Diana's belief? No, once she saw Ares wasn't the source, the bell could not be unrung. She does not reinstate him as the source, seeing that he was still alive and real. Does Diana love Ares? Why kill him? Diana does not love Ares. She does not kill him with love. Her authority to kill him comes from her divine mandate and purpose as the god killer. Her ability to do so comes from the love of mankind as their defender, refusing to judge them as a god. Even if she has the right to do so, even if she has the ability to do so, even if that's what they deserve. Diana, as the god killer, ends the Olympians and does not replace them. Why doesn't Diana reveal herself after World War I? My theory is it's about denying that godhood. Gods get to judge people, and the Olympian-style gods were tribal. So revealing herself would mean dividing mankind and pitting mankind against itself. She can only come out once mankind either stands together or doesn't divide over her. Did Diana walk away from mankind? The Diana Prince persona did not. The divine warrior goddess did. What did Diana do for a hundred years? Live like a civilian though I think that the god killer did come out on occasion. What moves Diana to act? Doomsday fit the parameters of what the god killer is meant to do. Fight a threat against which all mankind would stand against. Why doesn't she have the same powers in that fight? Ares and Diana seem to be powering each other up. Ares showing powers that he hadn't had while weak. Diana showing powers that she's never had before or since. Diana may have to be fighting another god to have those powers, or she may require personal emotional stakes like Steve dying to access them. And there may be an aspect of belief driving the powers that were suppressed after a century of keeping Wonder Woman hidden from the world. Why does Diana finally go public? Superman's sacrifice creates the superhero context so that benevolent metahumans are just seen as trying to help and willing to die trying, not unstoppable, unaccountable gods lording their power over mere mortals. And that's it. So let's see, no music this time. I think I'm just going to play these clips. First, an example of how Diana can be enlightened in a way that can't be unrung. Be warned, it's a one-way trip. Then, we have a Stanford professor of neurology, Robert Sapolsky, on altruism. Then we have something Jesse Eisenberg wrote for The New Yorker entitled, Why I Broke Up with the Little Mermaid. And finally, a TED-Ed clip on the philosophy of stoicism. See you next time. You're the answer, son. I'm going to play something for you, and I want you to listen to it with the intention of detecting something unusual within the sound, something distinct. Within all of that noise was a snippet of audio created by Matt Davis, who is a scientist at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at Cambridge University. He researches what's going on in your brain when you try to understand language. Here is the snippet from his research. 
right now, that sounds like noise to you. And I want you to savor that feeling because where we are going next, you can never go back. I'll play it one more time, and then we will cross the cognitive point of no return. When it comes to the development of your brain, there's a history, a timeline in which there is a you before you heard the next segment and a you after you hear it. And after you hear it, you can never, ever go back. Right now, your brain has no idea what to do with all of that noise. It wants to make sense of it, but it can't. This is excruciating to the brain because other than keeping your body alive, its greatest talent, the task it is most eager to perform, is pattern recognition. Well, to understand it, you need to get that pattern recognition that your brain is so thirsty for. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. Welcome to the other side. This illustration is called Perceptual Pop-Out. First, there is noise. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. Then, there is a pattern. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. Now, try to find the pattern against the background of chaos. When the brain enters the world, just about everything is noise. And then you learn the patterns. You're the answer, son. And what the studies suggest is at all sorts of junctures of doing the harder thing, yeah, having a really robust, studly frontal cortex may do you a lot of good there. But when you do sort of the truly difficult thing, when you see people who are the ones who run into the burning building to save the child and they leap into the river when everybody else is standing there like headless chickens, when you look at those people, they're not doing it because they've got the most amazing frontal cortexes on earth that could reason through the long-term consequences of, oh, what if nobody in society came to the aid of strangers? What they do is they do it automatically. You ask anybody who does one of these heroic acts, what were you thinking when you jumped in the river? And the answer is always the same. I wasn't thinking. Before I knew it, I had jumped in. When we do our most amazingly, like wondrous altruistic acts, it's not because we've got the most incredible frontal cortexes on earth that could like reason us. It's because it's out of the realm of the frontal cortex and it's out of the realm of temptation and limbic stuff. We do the harder thing in a case like that because for us, it's not the harder thing. It's become automatic. You're the answer, son. As Zeno began educating his own students, he originated the philosophy known as Stoicism, whose teachings of virtue, tolerance, and self-control have inspired generations of thinkers and leaders. Today, we colloquially use the word Stoic to mean someone who remains calm under pressure and avoids emotional extremes. But while this captures important aspects of Stoicism, the original philosophy was more than just an attitude. The Stoics believed that everything around us operates according to a web of cause and effect, resulting in a rational structure of the universe, which they called logos. And while we may not always have control over the events affecting us, we can have control over how we approach things. Rather than imagining an ideal society, the Stoic tries to deal with the world as it is, while pursuing self-improvement through four cardinal virtues. Practical wisdom, the ability to navigate complex situations in a logical, informed, and calm manner. Temperance, the exercise of self-restraint and moderation in all aspects of life. Justice, treating others with fairness 
even when they have done wrong, and courage, not just in extraordinary circumstances, but facing daily challenges with clarity and integrity. As Seneca, one of the most famous Roman Stoics, wrote, sometimes even to live is an act of courage. But while Stoicism focuses on personal improvement, it's not a self-centered philosophy. At a time when Roman laws considered slaves as property, Seneca called for their humane treatment and stressed that we all share the same fundamental humanity. Nor does Stoicism encourage passivity. The idea is that only people who have cultivated virtue and self-control in themselves can bring positive change in others. One of the most famous Stoic writers was also one of Rome's greatest emperors. Over the course of his 19-year reign, Stoicism gave Marcus Aurelius the resolve to lead the empire through two major wars while dealing with the loss of many of his children. Centuries later, Marcus's journals would guide and comfort Nelson Mandela through his 27-year imprisonment during his struggle for racial equality in South Africa. After his release and eventual victory, Mandela stressed peace and reconciliation, believing that while the injustices of the past couldn't be changed, his people could confront them in the present and seek to build a better, more just future. Stoicism was an active school of philosophy for several centuries in Greece and Rome. Its influence has continued to this day. Christian theologians such as Thomas Aquinas have admired and adopted its focus on the virtues. And there are parallels between Stoic ataraxia, or tranquility of mind, and the Buddhist concept of nirvana. One particularly influential Stoic was the philosopher Epictetus, who wrote that suffering stems not from the events in our lives, but from our judgments about them. This has resonated strongly with modern psychology. For example, rational emotive behavioral therapy focuses on changing the self-defeating attitudes people form about their life circumstances. There's also Viktor Frankl's Logotherapy. Informed by Frankl's own time as a concentration camp prisoner, Logotherapy is based on the Stoic principle that we can harness our willpower to fill our lives with meaning, even in the bleakest situations. You're the answer, son. From WNYC Studios and The New Yorker, with an apology to Walt Disney, this is Why I Broke Up with the Little Mermaid by Jesse Eisenberg. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Not really. What, what is it? They're who's and what, silly. I got them from a yard sale. Yeah, we don't need more stuff. I can barely walk through the house. You want thingamabobs? What, you mean those vintage corkscrews? I got 20. Yeah, where did you even find those? Estate sales. You've just been going around to estate sales? And sometimes eBay. Okay, you can't keep buying this stuff. Oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. You put 17 washing machines on layaway at Sears. And I want more. Three Vitamixes were just delivered from Amazon. The Blendamorals arrived? How splendid. Yeah, they were $600 each. But they're the only kind of Blendamoral that can mix up my who's its and what's its. Yeah, did you read that book I got you about the Easter paradox? No, but I used the pages to make an origami bird. Right. Easterlin posits that happiness isn't derived from the accumulation of material goods. In fact, newer studies show that amassing possessions will likely make you feel almost counterintuitively uh, deprived. Stop reprimanding me. You sound just like daddy. Uh, can you please not say daddy? It, it sounds weird coming from an adult. Betcha on land, they understand that they don't reprimand their daughters. Bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. 
Are you all right? You've been tossing and turning all night. I can't sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm panicked. What's wrong? Did an octopus steal your soul? What? No. Is a Jamaican crab spying on you? No. What? No. No, I'm just feeling stressed out about work. The deadline for my book is next month. I haven't even started writing it. Well, that's not so bad. I have a splendid idea. Really? What if you trade a part of your body for a manuscript? Sorry, what do you mean? I mean, we find an evil sorceress and we ask her to accept one of your body parts in exchange for a finished manuscript. I was really hoping to just talk through some of the plot with you. You don't need a plot, silly. You just need to think of a part of your body that you don't need that much. Like one of your arms or an eye. Or maybe the sorceress will have her own suggestion. And then you trade it in for a finished manuscript. That sounds terrifying. Oh, silly. It's only terrifying if you don't get the book published within three days. Why? Then what happens? Then the sorceress will keep your book and your arm. Okay, can't you just listen to me? I'm feeling anxious. I need, I need to get this off my chest. Oh, your chest. We'll trade in your chest for the book. How splendid. I'm not trading any part of me for the book. Well, then I don't know how else to help you. Turn off the lights, my bulb. I'm going to sleep. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet. Honey, I'm home, and I had the most splendid day. Great. Uh, Did you pick up the dry cleaning? Well, I certainly tried to, silly. I went to the cleaners, but I forgot what you asked me to pick up. What was that word again? Dress shirts. Right, your dress shirts. I'm sorry, sweetheart, I forgot. That's okay. I'll get them myself later. Did you make it to the pharmacy? Well, I knew I had to refill your... What was that word again? Paxil. Right, your Paximalol. It's just Paxil. Right, Paximabob. How splendid. Okay, did you get it? No. Okay, you forgot that too. Well, did you at least pick up our son? I tried to. I even went to his... What's that word again? School. And I asked his... What do you call her again? Teacher. If she had my... What is he called again? Son. But she asked me for his... What do you call it again? Name. And I told her it was... What do we call him again? Ryan. Right, Ryan. No, I didn't get him. Allie Eisenberg and her brother Jesse Eisenberg, performing Why I Broke Up with the Little Mermaid, a piece Jesse wrote for the New Yorker's Shouts and Murmurs page. You're the answer, son. Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale of a boy and girl and their love story. And how he loved her Oh so much And all the charms She did possess My love is like A storybook story It's as real As the feelings I feel My love is like A storybook story But it's as real As the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel Now this did happen once upon a time When things were not so complex And how he worshipped the ground she walked on When he looked in her eyes he became obsessed My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel 
My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel He said, don't you know I love you oh so much And lay my heart at the foot of your dress She said, don't you know that a storybook love Always has a happy ending Then he swooped her up just like in the books And on his stallion they rode away My love is like a storybook story But it's as real as the feelings I feel My love is like a storybook story It's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel It's as real as the feelings I feel Yes, it's as real as the feelings I feel You're the answer, son.